Dr. Pinto. Well, call me Nick, John. We have a mutual acquaintance, according to these photographs. Nick, I'm sure you realize by now that you're involved in a very dangerous situation. Well, I don't remember getting myself involved. Yes, well, it was an unfortunate series of events. Look, I want those photos. Yeah, well, I want to go home. Let's get together. I'll say it first. We all love fun. And it's time for Kill McCast. Yeah, it's time for Kill McCast. Welcome to Kill McCast. Here is your host, Francis Rizzo III. Thanks, Bernard. Welcome to all the Val Pals listening out there for a new episode of Kilmer Cast. I'm your host, Francis Rizzo III, and I'm here to talk about the films of Val Kilmer, one of the most truly terrific American film actors of the modern era. On this episode, we'll be talking about, well, I'm not really sure how to describe what he does in this film because it's not quite clear, um, but we'll figure that out as we go along uh, as we talk about 2009's Double Identity. Joining us to talk, talk about the film and Kilmer's role in it is an author and the man behind the direct-to-video connoisseur blog and podcast from South Philadelphia, however not born and raised there, it's Matthew Poirier. <laughs> I said it wrong, Matthew Poirier. That's okay. It's not an easy <laughs> name. It's not, yeah, it's, it's not the best. Yeah, so it, yeah Matt, Matt, that's fine. Matt is good. We'll go with Matt, that's for sure. I know it's, a, it's, it's one of those things when I tell people about like like going on Amazon to try to, to get my book, I, I would say it's easier to look for the title than my, my last name because having to spell it is even worse than having to say it so where the i's go and the r's it's yeah it's a i'm I'm always just thankful my parents just called me matt or matthew because at least my first name's an easy one so i don't have to worry about the last name this is absolutely true how are you doing today matt i'm great i'm great waiting for the the snow to come i guess here in philadelphia but other than that you know doing well that's great i can't believe it's already been a month into this year it's insane insane how fast time goes now yeah yeah i've heard that's when you get older because you're everybody's used to everybody's seen everything before there's there's very few things that are new to people that it's new things that make time go slower so that's why Mm -hmm. when we're younger time seems to go slower because everything's so new to us whereas when we're older everything's in autopilot i guess and so then you know time just goes by a lot quicker You'd think that after the last four years, we have seen a lot of things we haven't seen before. Right. So you'd think, yeah. you'd think we'd be moving at a glacier pace, but right. it feels like it just keeps flying by. Yeah, yeah. You're, yeah. That, you're a good point there. It's a good point. <laughs> so uh, as a connoisseur of all things not released in theaters, uh, this pandemic really has to been a bit of a treat for you. I mean, everything is not going to theaters. Yeah. What's funny is <laughs> it, it did actually you know, cause us to figure out, like, what do we define as a direct-to-video movie? Because now it's like, I mean, Martin Scorsese, the Irishman was um, was released in, in in on Netflix. You know, direct to Netflix. That's technically a direct to video movie. And I actually did review it in the site, and it got mixed responses. Like some people were like, "Oh, this is you know, this is, you've got to do it." You know, it's a Scorsese direct to video movie. You have to review. It. And other people were like, "You know, is this really like kind of you know?" I mean, it's like I don't know what the budget was. I think it was nine figures or something like that. I mean, it's like you know, I mean, you know, it, it was a lot of money that they spent. The funny yeah. thing is, people like De Niro and Pacino have been doing direct to video movies. So um, it's not like it was the first time I'd seen them on the site. But um, but yeah, it it definitely changed the calculus of what we you know what we consider direct to video because now almost everything is going to that space yeah it's really hard to nail down when you when you talk like that about what how do you, you define a direct to video film in a world where streaming is for the most part the the core way people view films i mean 
people just don't go to theaters, <laughs> you know, especially right now. But even before the pandemic, people stopped going to theater and just waited for it to come out on Netflix or whatever. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, like, because with the, with, with the Netflix, you know, situation now where Netflix, I mean, like they're releasing some of the movies in the theater to make them Oscar worthy. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think of, um, uh, you know, Dolomite is my name, where it's a movie that mm-hmm. it, it probably because it came out through Netflix was not as as messed with you know they're they're probably it was probably allowed to take the chances it wanted to take and be the movie it wanted to be um Mm. but by the same token you know it's not a direct-to-video movie in that sense that like when we think of direct-to-video we think of movies that have major budgetary restraints we think of movies Mm. that you know often are more producer driven than like director um actor you know it's like almost like the the producer is told by the studio here's how much money you you can spend or you know you got to make it on this kind of money and then the actors that they get if they get name actors the name actors have all of their demands because they feel like they can make those demands you know it's not like if you're working with stanley kubrick you know stanley kubrick tells you what to do and you're just so happy to work (laughs) with stanley kubrick you know when you're not working with stanley kubrick when you're bruce willis who's you know doing a movie for 60 grand a day and you're just there for that one day you know you say okay i'm not doing my reverse shots i'm not doing my overdubbing i'm you know all that kind of stuff and so it's you know so when you think of it, you know, these Netflix movies that are technically direct to video or like we're seeing now where where major Hollywood productions are technically, I mean, to some extent, the new Wonder Woman movie is direct to video on some mm-hmm. level. I mean, it's kind of, you know, released at the same time, but it's not really in the spirit of what we think of as direct to video. So mm-hmm. I've kind of had to rethink it, you know, because my old rule was just if the movie didn't make $10 million in the theater, it was considered direct to video and I went with it. Um, <laughs> and now it's like now I have to, you know, change my, my calculus. So. Well, with Wonder Woman, perhaps you could say the quality would still tie into direct to video. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I haven't seen it yet, so I've I've heard. I, that's one thing about me being with the direct to video part of it is I, I'm always behind on the newest oh, releases. Yeah. So I, I don't know why, but I just I can't. You know, in, in, in I mean, I just have to fire up HBO Max and watch it. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I should be watching it, but uh, I've heard I've heard. Um, yeah, not not a lot of great things about that one. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely would agree with you that uh, budget seems like the core definer when it comes to a, a direct-to-video film, uh, no matter how it's actually released. Because, I mean, direct-to-video films have a reputation for being chintzy. I mean, that you not you don't find a lot of direct-to-video films that are, you know, high-quality art films. <laughs> you know, is is there a particular direct-to-video film that sticks out in your head as truly memorable as? a quality film wow i mean there's a lot of them that do that i mean one in particular you know i think about is black dynamite um that was a michael Jackson that's a great film. film yeah and one of the things i, I actually looked up the, the the history behind that one and one of the interesting things is that he michael J. white went to sony and said listen i know how to market this in the theater i i can just follow the tyler perry um the tyler perry script and i can make this successful in the theater and sony was like no we we don't want to we don't think it's going to make it. We don't think it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Ended up being one of the best, uh, I, I guess, grossing, or I don't know, I don't know what the term is for when it's when it's being sold after being in the theater. But it, it generated the most revenue, I think, of, of a direct-to-video movie, of, you know, maybe of all time. It, it's hard to say, you know, do I call that a, a direct-to-video movie when it was technical? But that's how a lot of movies end up being direct-to-video in a lot of cases. It's that the studio just says, no, we're not releasing this in the theater. We don't think it's going to do well. And then here's this movie that really was a theatrical quality movie that by you know no fault of its own just ends up direct to video um so i think that one when i think of 
that might be maybe one of the best. Um, another one is a Showdown in Little Tokyo, which is a Dolph Lundgren movie from the late 80s. That, oh, I know that, yeah. Yeah, um, same thing. I think it was the guy who directed Commando, Mark L. Lester. Uh, hmm. You know, he was hoping to put this out in the theater as well. And I think it did get, it did get a limited theatrical release. I think it grossed like maybe like seven or eight million in the theater. But I remember seeing it first. Um, my friend had, um, my friend's parents had a discrambler box. So they got mm-hmm. all the cable channels and got the pay-per-view <laughs> channels. And so when it was on pay-per-view, that was, you know, we saw it for free on his discrambler box. And I thought, this movie is amazing. You know, it, it was I, I, 87, I guess, or 88 or so. I, don't, I was like, you know, nine or 10 years old, but I just thought it was yeah. like just fantastic. And that one has always stood out to me too, is, is like a really, you know, just one that I just always really, just a lot of action, only 76 minutes long. So a lot of things you like in direct-to-video. Yeah, it's funny when you mention about films that were intended to be theater films and they end up in the uh, direct-to-video segment. I always enjoy when I go to uh, like Dollar Tree and I buy like dollar Blu-rays and dollar DVDs and I see a film where I'm like, hold on, this cast is super high charge. There's tons of people in here I know. How did it never make it? And I'm always, I would love to know the story behind all these films. Like what happened along the way to eliminate it from hitting theaters and ending up on the Dollar Tree shelf? Yeah, because it's kind of like two different ways that movies are direct to video. Like it's that, a lot of them are that kind where it's like somebody has an idea, they have a, 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 a vision, but the studio won't take it. And so they've got to go the direct to video route. Other ways is it's more like these scripts that studios have and they just go to a line producer and say, can you make this? Or how much can you make this for? And they might mm-hmm. say, okay, well, I can make it for five million. And so it was great, make it for three and you're good. You know, and, and it's like, you know, <laughs> someone like Steven Seagal will go to the producer to the studio and say, I need another movie because I need, I need money. Can we, you know, do you have anything for me? So it's like, okay, well, we've got this script here. The line producer said they can make it for 3 million. So part of that budget will be Seagal and we'll, you know, shoehorn him into the script and, and make it work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm re- right now I'm reading the um the Canon Film Guide, yeah. uh, which is all about the Canon films from the '80s, yeah. and there's a lot of stories about how these direct-to-video films were made, yeah. and it, uh, it's definitely true. So much of it is just the the backdoor deals that you know. Well, I got a script, I got money, let's make a movie, and you know, it eventually will make money because of how little it costs. That yeah. you know, you can sell the rights in various different ways. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting because I was hearing from some of those line producers, or I've listened to other podcasts where they do you know interviews with line producers. And they said that some, to some extent now it's almost like they, they're trying to make their money back or they're trying to break mm-hmm. even with these pictures. But I think it's a matter of like having them in their library so that they can go to these streaming services and sell them or, you know, and it's like if you get a bunch of them, you know, you put them on Tubi and you get, a, you know, enough of them going and they're, they're generating the money that's beyond whatever they made back from the, the, the price to make it. Yeah. Now, today's film is talking about secret agents and international intrigue, which I think is an area that gets a lot of representation in the direct-to-video film genre. Why do you think that is? I think because it's, one, I think people just identify with it. Like, they like the idea of, you know, the James Bond secret agent part. Um, I think that's one piece that they like. Um, this one's a little unique in that it doesn't have as much action, but I think that's the other part of it. They like the action aspect. I think the stars, the, you know, getting the stars involved, they have fun playing these secret agents. Um, I, you know, Seagal, Dolph Lundgren, they, they seem, you know, they, they do a lot of these where they're, you know, these sort of CIA trained, uh, you know, these sort of CIA trained former army guys that are put mm. somewhere in Eastern Europe and have to do <laughs> stuff. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's part of it. I think, you know, I think it's from a script wise, I think the people who write the scripts, I think they, they come from that tradition and they just really like that kind of thing. And I, I think it's also very easy. I don't want to be too crass or dismissive of it, but I think it's very easy to kind of cut and paste and put the pieces mm. together and, and, and make another movie uh, with, with this kind of uh, this, this uh, paradigm. 
And I imagine when you set them in international areas like Eastern Europe, filming is a lot cheaper as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's one thing that, that, you know, this one was made in 2009. And I, you know, that's right around the time that we get the financial collapse here in the United States. Uh, hmm. And what happens is after that is you start to see more of these films made in places like Michigan, uh, New Orleans, where the, the, there were struggling economies that could use the money of having films come in and, you know, all the catering, the, all, all of the stuff that goes with that. So we're starting, you know, in the 2010s, we saw a little less of the Eastern European, but in the 2000s, it was just like, you know, Bulgaria, Romania, just constant movies that were being made out of those areas. Well, before we dive into what's happening in Bulgaria, yes. or <laughs> Sofia, Bulgaria, we need to talk about this film in context. Gather round. As we put Kilmer in context. So obviously it's direct to video, double identity to make it to theaters, but it did hit home video in America on February 23rd, 2010. Uh, it actually took a little while for it to hit American uh, box office, well, home video. Um, so at that time, Beyonce won six Grammys, including best song for single ladies, which feels so long ago now. <laughs> it's only 10 years. <laughs> The, uh, the Lancet actually issued a full retraction of the now discredited paper that linked vaccines to autism. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, that retraction hasn't had, all, you know, unfortunately hasn't had the full effect that it should have. Um, but you know, we'll see now with the new vaccine for COVID, and hopefully we can get around that. Uh, also at that time, Dr. Conrad Murray was charged with involuntary manslaughter in pop singer Michael Jackson's death. Um, yeah, it's weird. I don't remember a whole lot about that time. I don't, I mean, about that whole storyline. I know that he died from an overdose of some sort, I believe. Is that, am I correct about that? Do you remember? Yeah. So I think that doctor was prescribing him because I guess like the, the sedatives that he was taking were not strong enough. So I think the doctor was dis pres prescribing. I don't know. I, I shouldn't be saying, cause I don't know for sure myself, but <laughs> I think I remember that he was prescribing like kind of like drugs that um, anesthetists use when hmm. putting somebody under um, for surgery or something like that. And that, that's what he took that he over, I, I think it was something like that. I don't even know if he actually was found guilty in the end. That really just fell off on the wayside, that whole storyline. Once he died, I think people lost, I mean, once Michael wasn't around, they lost interest in the whole, and found another storyline with Michael Jackson eventually to, to focus on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do remember there was a resurgence in his music. Like I remember like he was considered kind of, you know, a pariah for the mm -hmm. period before that, and nobody would touch his music. And then it seemed like when he passed, suddenly people were like, oh, we can celebrate his music again. Um, and and now, of course, now people just don't know what to do with it, I guess. Yeah, it's it's uh, definitely hard to separate the, the man from the art, Yeah. Um, even though the songs are fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, also at the time, uh, the Winter Olympic Games opened in Vancouver, took over the whole month of February at that point. And President Barack Obama announced the health care reform bill with it, that eventually would become the Affordable Care Act, which we're still struggling with today. <laughs> so some things don't change even 10 years later. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. We're kind of almost seeing like with, um, you know, not, not trying to you know, pick one side on the, of the aisle politically, but it does feel like now that, um, you know, Democrats in, in, in the, uh, as president again, it feels like the, the Republican senators are certainly going back to the, you know, exactly the, 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 the playbook with Obama about trying to block things and keep, you know, and it's suddenly like all the things that they were okay with before suddenly now, like, oh, we, we can't do that now. And yeah, so it, it is interesting that 2010, it, it's, it feels long ago, but a lot of these things, you know, it's like our, our memories are not that short, you know, like they, yeah. yeah. It's like a time machine. We're right back into it. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Looking at the entertainment landscape, number one on the Billboard charts was Kesha with TikTok, big song, um, followed by We Are the World 25 for Haiti by Artists for Haiti. Um, 
Yeah, I don't really, I don't remember this. Um, it's not something that really sticks out in my head, the We Are the World 25. Do you remember much about it? I don't. I, I kind of remember it, 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 like, that it was happening. I think, like, like Wyclef Jean was one of the big mm-hmm. proponents yep. of it. Yeah. So I remember that aspect of it. I think by 2010, um, now the funny thing is the Kesha song, the only reason why I remember the Kesha song is that um, I went with my family, um, which you know, I was in my, my early 30s at that time, so I was a little bit old to be doing a family trip to Florida from, from Maine, but we went to go visit my grandparents, and, you know, it was kind of one of those things where, like, my, two of my siblings and my mom and I were down there. I remember trying to find radio stations. That Kesha song was just on all the time, all every the radio time. station we found. Um, so I think it, for me at that point, I was kind of out, you know, getting into my 30s, I was kind of falling a little bit away from pop music. So mm-hmm. I just remember the idea of that happening, like that, that they were doing that We Are the World for Haiti. Yeah, I gave a look at it because uh, I was like, wow, I don't even remember this really happening. I mean, obviously, I remember what happened with Haiti, but I didn't remember a We Are the World effort. Um, it's okay. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty good. Uh, Jamie Foxx was leading the way with it along with Wyclef Jean. Uh, included in the performers were Justin Bieber, Tony Bennett, Kanye West, Celine Dion, Barbara Streisand, and a bunch of people that I just don't recognize, which I think it speaks to my disconnect from popular music. Like you said, um, I just did not know. I I look at these people in this video. I'm like, I remember the original We Are The World and every person in that video was a superstar. This one, I'm like, I don't know who these people are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's funny that speaking of the the older, the the previous We Are The World, um, I was... um, playing uh, on Spotify on my, my TV through, uh, through my cable box, um, they do like the genius bar where they tell you, you know, behind the, 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 the um, you know, information, backstory of a, of a song. And I think it was, um, I think it was, I, I Can't Go For That by, um, uh, by Paula mm-hmm. Notes. I think that was the one that mm-hmm. apparently Daryl Hall, when he was finished with We're the World, and I guess everybody was, all the artists were kind of ha- milling around. Michael Jackson admitted to him, I think it was, I can't go for that, that he stole the, the opening riff to that for <laughs> Billie Jean. Um, <laughs> and so it's kind of interesting that you're mentioning We're the World, and I had just seen that last night, and I was like, oh, you know what? It does kind of sound the same. It does, yeah. yeah. And speaking of Michael Jackson, he, he obviously died the previous year. We talked about Conrad Murray. They included him in this song as well. They took clips from his performance in the original We Are the World and inserted them into this We Are the World. I guess, you know, it'd been fresh enough that he was still in that, like you said, that glow of uh, post, you know, post-death that he, people were enjoying his music again. And so they're like, yeah, let's throw him into this We Are the World as well. Uh, but, you know, uh, that kind of went away as well. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I, yeah, now, now that you mentioned, I kind of remember that, that it was happening, that they were doing it. Mm. And uh, at number three behind We Are the World was uh, I'm a Bee by Black Eyed Peas, which I have to say the number of times we mentioned Black Eyed Peas on this show is very upsetting. Yeah. They are, every film, it feels like they are one of the top three songs on the charts. <laughs> yes, yeah. It, it's amazing how popular they are. You know, um, even, like, even today, I think they're still around. And it's just like, wow, like over a decade of that. <laughs> yeah, they, they seem like they were just pumping out. Like it was almost like kind of like Brill Building with, you know, mm. Burt Bacharach and, um, you know, and, uh, oh, why am I drawing a blank on, on Dion Warwick? I can't believe I drew a blank on the first name there. <laughs> but, uh, but it was almost it, like that was kind of that thing. And they, they, I, I don't know, I feel like music after Black Eyed Peas is just all of that kind of thing now where it's just mm. like overproduce it, pump it out. But I've read again recently that I've heard when you get older, your your ears are not as as sophisticated or they, they you know they, they don't pick up sounds as well and i've huh. heard that that one of the reasons why people think older people think new music is bad is because their ears aren't as used to 
hearing new stuff. Whereas with, when they hear their old songs that they like, their brain can fill in the gaps, I guess. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So maybe that's, that's why, I, you know, when you get older, you, you think all new music is bad, but you know, <laughs> I guess that might be, so maybe I should be so hard on it. <laughs> I like to think I can, I enjoy some new music. It's yeah. just that a lot of it does definitely sound the same and you're, I, I'm always looking for something new or different. Yeah. Yeah. And that something that catches my ear that's really unique. I'm all for it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> Uh, which is why jumping over to TV, uh, I wasn't too into the TV at the time because it was not very original because it was pretty much all unscripted content at that point. Yeah. Um, the top five spots and six of the top 10 were uh, non-scripted content. And of course, three of them were the Winter Olympics from Vancouver. So that's always going to be top. But incredibly, you have the Olympics, which is like the greatest spectacle of amateur athletics in the world. Yeah. And it couldn't beat out American Idol. <laughs> right. American Idol took the number two, the number one and two spots on the ch- on the charts and TV, which wow. it's like really people are watching the American Idol more than the Olympics. Yeah, I'm trying to think because I think I, that may have been a season. Was that the Adam Lambert season? Because well, that's what's interesting. Because <laughs> yeah, a, here's a note about that: people watched this season of American Idol over the Olympics and ended up with the winner being Lee Wise which nobody would ever be able to pick out of a lineup. Yeah, no, I don't remember. So that wasn't the Adam. So, so Adam Lambert was the year before, I guess, maybe. I did. I'm not a big American Idol guy, so I yeah. couldn't tell you. <laughs> but this is the first one I did read that this is the first one that did not uh, become a chart hit. Oh, uh, he did. He did not have a successful career. Wow. And so I guess before that, they were all mega stars. And then this guy came along yeah. and put a kibosh on that. Yeah. I, so actually, when you mention it now, when you talk about early 2010, so when I was in 20, 2009, I was living in Portland, Maine, and my roommates and I would watch things like American Idol. I had moved out um, kind of like mid-2009, and I think once I was not in that kind of that milieu, I stopped watching it. Like, I didn't have the impetus to kind of keep, you know, like, oh, everybody's watching it tonight. Let's watch it together. I, I, I stopped having that, and so then that was it. I, I don't think I know any of them after that season. No. Yeah, yeah I couldn't tell you who a winner of American Idol is. I mean, the last one I think I can think of is... Who was the Soul Patrol guy? Was he a winner? Oh, I don't remember who was it. He was like an older guy who won it. And uh, I, even I say, I can't even name him. So yes. <laughs> made a big impact. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the rest of the list was mostly CBS, which was very common for the time. Yeah. Uh, you had Big Bang Theory, Two and a Half Men, and Undercover Boss, again, an unscripted show. Yeah. And then House and Lost. I, I was really into House for a long time there. I, I loved that show. I mean, obviously a great cast and, yeah. uh, you know, I just, I've, re- in the past, you know, again, four years, I'd say, I've lost interest in dramas, in hour-long dramas. I just want to laugh at stuff. And yeah. So, I, I, it's unfortunate, because I'm sure I've missed out on some really good television, right. but I just can't do it. I, it just doesn't appeal to me. Yeah, I'm the same way. My, my wife and I, all we ever watch are, like, it, it, we don't even just watch, like, comedies we watch like old comedies like you know bob newhart show mary tyler moore taxi things like that that are on like retro channels and things like that mm-hmm. um yeah but the same thing because we just want to laugh um yeah I, I mean i remember house um we used to watch that. i think it was like on a monday night right is that when um it might be yeah and i think we used to watch it um one of the things i remember that was really funny was um he did um uh, hugh laurie did an award show with 
um, was Zach Braff. And he was using his natural English accent. And I guess Zach Braff was joking about it. And he was like, you know, like, oh, I guess we're all going to use English accents now. Huh? You know, is that how we're talking? You know, like, you know, was, I was going to kick out of that. Because I know my, my friends, um, I had some friends that were into, you know, sort of BBC shows. Oh, yeah. Knew, Black Adder. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. And they knew Hugh Laurie from before House. And they thought his accent was ridiculous. They couldn't, you know, they had trouble watching it. They, they were just like, where did he get that accent from? So, yeah, I remember Fry and Laurie was really good. And then I saw him on House. And I was like, whoa. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I didn't have that experience. I was just like, okay, no, he's just, he's, he's supposed to be a jerk. That's the whole point. And, and they were like, no, no, this is weird. And then I started watching some of those stuff and I realized, like, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, over on the bookseller book list, the New York Times bestsellers, Worst Case by James Patterson and Michael Ledwidge was number one uh, about a detective. This is a weird one. Detective raising 10 children alone and, and investigating a string of kidnappings and killings by teenagers. Um, I mean, I don't read James Patterson books. I don't know if you're a big reader, but I mean, I, this guy sells more books than anybody. And what's amazing is apparently he doesn't write them he's just like he has this co-writer on he has several co-writers that he writes with his books and he just slaps his name on them and i guess he like guides them in a way but um as far as i'm aware he he just he's kind of like making money off of other people's work for the most part i had no idea yeah my, my mom is a big fan um and so she gets them like in hardcover from like mm -hmm. barnes and noble or whatever like when they're new and um and so you'd see them like if I go visit my parents, I'll see them kind of around the house. And um, I remember picking up one to just to kind of see what it was like. Mm -hmm. And and I was surprised at how macabre it was. I mean, it, oh, was, yeah. like, it was very descriptive of the murders. And I thought, I can't believe my mom's reading this. Like, this is, this is crazy. <laughs> Isn't that weird how like, you know, you think of books like that, you know, there's some really dark, twisted serial killer books that people read. And they're fine with it if it's on the page, but then when you they won't watch a horror film. Yeah. And it's like, oh, you you have you have boundaries where your imagination is okay, but when people display it graphically to you, you can't handle it. Yeah. I mean, I think if my mom, yeah, that's a good point. I think if and the other thing too is I think with those those um ident um, the ID uh, TV show or you know um those mystery you know like the true crime shows on TV. Oh yeah. It's like you can hear a detective describing what happened, and like some some you know some some actors loosely reenacting it with like maybe like blurry screens and things happening around and it's not like exactly showing it like they're mm -hmm. okay with that you're right and it's like if this had been depicted in a movie my mom would have been like turn this off i can't watch this yeah it's a good point i never thought of it like that <laughs> we had opposite on the nonfiction chart uh with game change by john heilman and mark halpern this was the story of the 2008 election with barack obama bill Cl bill and hillary clinton john and elizabeth edwards john mccain and sarah palin this obviously became a big movie on hbo this is where we really started to see the political, the polarization of politics in that 2008 with the Sarah Palin. You know, she really pushed things to a new level as far as politics as tribalism. And, you know, when you had to defend somebody like her who's obviously, an, you know, unqualified person to be running for the second highest office in the land. And yet people would get behind her just because she wore the same jersey as them. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the Tea Party is coming along at that time. And they were very polarized. And they were, um, and they, they also too, like, there was a sort of like that this was sort of the initial sort of attacking of facts you know like i remember mm -hmm. people would be on tv shows like they would be representing these these what they called astroturf groups they were like funded by billionaires but they're supposed to look like grassroots movements to, oh, yeah. you know grassroots political movements and then they'd get called out for it and they'd be like well i'm not doing this whole gotcha thing you know and all that kind of stuff. it's like no you know this is like you know and that, that was the other thing too sort of like the pivoting around facts and sort of avoiding you know talking about things and yeah it's interesting you mentioned you know sarah palin because now you know you think about joe biden being president now and i 
remember the the debate that the two of them had. Mm-hmm. Where he's talking about his kids and his and his wife dying in a car crash, and it's sort of like this emotional moment. And I remember she was so coached up because she didn't really have a game. You know, she didn't really wasn't really you know it was, it was kind of um, you know not ready for prime time at that point. And I remember oh, she, yeah. she didn't really respond. She didn't know how to respond mm-hmm. to him, and it was really fascinating to see. But then you'd see like Republican pundits saying like how excited they were for for Sarah Palin. <laughs> and it was like I you know I don't, I don't you know yeah and I I you know I always wonder like yeah it was it, you, like you said it was kind of where the you know where, where we kind of started to get you know to um where we are now yeah and that book and the movie they, they made it both quite entertaining as well as insightful as everything was happening around that time so it makes sense that it was the number one book in America over in box office um <laughs> obviously uh double identity had no chance of dominating since it was direct to video instead we had martin scorsese's shutter island at number one which took in 52 million dollars in its first week it's hard to i mean Knowing what we know of Martin Scorsese now and who, who you know the filmmaker is now, it's hard to imagine him being a number one popular filmmaker. <laughs> you know, and, and just ten years ago, that's it's kind of wild. Yeah, I mean, you think about because what you know, how what was it a year or two ago where he made that comment about how bad Marvel is, right? Like mm-hmm. The Marvelization of the, the 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 movie industry is killing it, and you, I I I didn't even think about it in that context that only. You know, to that, you know, 2010, he had the number one film in the in the country, and yeah, you, you're right. Like now, he's his movies are going direct to Netflix. He can't get yeah. in the theater. It's it's you know, the, things have changed so rapidly and so dramatically because, and like you said, you know, like he said that Marvel has dominated and created. A, you know, if it's not intended for a huge wide audience with a very straightforward hero based plot, people don't really want to watch it, yeah. uh, which makes sense because of what was right behind it at number two, which was the 10th week of Avatar. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so there it is, right? You know, that was the one that really, you know, people say Marvel was the one that kickstarted this, but Avatar more than anything launched the big budget hero, you know, uh, comic booky kind of film uh, because I mean honestly at the end Avatar is a comic book style movie it's not I mean yes it has a, a, a relatively deep storyline about environment and you know and uh, you know person's homeland versus uh, you know uh, colonists but it's still a big action you know, blowout you know film and um, it took 21 million dollars in its 10th week I mean I don't think we're ever going to see a movie like that again yeah yeah I, I think you're right I think that kind of big budget you know i think we, we maybe like marvel infinity war movie that might be like the last that we we see of that but yeah you make a great point too with the avatar thing because i think that's what happens with the marvel movies is that they sort of pull from that success and start making their marvel movies more like that that you know i that, i never really considered that before that how avatar affected them but you, you're right like when you start to see how these marvel movies are they're all like these two and a half hour long movies that are just a lot of big things happening constantly and um, whereas like the comic book ones i mean you know when we were growing up I, comic books were you know they're considered a nerdy uh, oh, yeah. You know, you would never consider a comic book to be the the mainstream thing that you know a, an actor would want to do a comic book movie. Um, and now yeah. it's like you know if it, you know that this is like a plum job for them to get to be in a Marvel movie and have this kind of success. And so yeah, it, I never made that connection with Avatar, but that you know it, you kind of can see it with like the Iron Man movie that comes out uh, kind of around that time. But I think you know as they start making more of those movies, like the Captain America one, I think came out in twenty eleven. You know, they're really starting to pull from this sort of this big larger than life version as opposed to just making a big budget comic book movie like they were making before now they kind of go full james cameron with it oh yeah and it's funny because you think about michael keaton as batman in 89 kind of people question why like why is he as a batman 
and now you know you go all the way now to now and he's back as batman and people are like oh you know great for him he got the batman role it's like wait you know back then it was like is his career over and now it's <laughs> he's a batman and he's a star it's like and then meanwhile he's still playing the vulture in the spider-man movie so he is a comic book character right? yeah. <laughs> all over the place <laughs> right right that's a good point I, yeah because people were like why would you yeah and it also too like they were like why would you have michael keaton play batman because he's not an action person now it's like you look at all of these actors chris evans you know like um you know robert downey jr like yeah. you know Tell Swinton. yeah yeah like none of these are like you know big arnold schwarzenegger types that are playing these parts yeah it's it's it, I, you know, I'm never going to look down on the Marvel movies because I find them to be, you know, hugely entertaining. And I think that the stories, the way they've woven them together, I think it's it's fascinating because to make a film that's bigger than the film you're watching because it has so many other effects, I think that's great. And I, I get that, you know, it's like, well, you know, you, 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 it's all commercial. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what movies are. <laughs> you, you pay to buy tickets to watch movies. You know, yes, you can make art that sells. But in the end, you have to sell it. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that was the one problem, right, with the comic book movie before was that it, it was always like the origin story, right? It was always like, you know, and it, and it was always so self-contained. You know, uh, Spider-Man would only fight with Spider-Man. You know, you know, he never would team up with Iron Man or something like that. But with the comics, it was like always, you know, comic book characters guest starring in other comic books. And I think once they finally decided to weave them together like that, they – you know, they hit on something that, that I think got the comic book fans involved. But then at the same time, I don't think they realized that when they did it, it would get other movie fans involved because they would just be like, oh, I can't wait to see the next one, see what the next one's like. And um, yeah, it, it, it really took off like that. And I, I agree with you there. I think it's, you know, it's easy to dump on the Marvel movies, um, you know, because they're the they're the number one they're the biggest one and i i do think it would be nice to see more lower budget films that you know aren't going to pull in 1.4 billion you know gross or whatever um you know to see that happen i mean you know i think the, the joker movie was nice because it was a 60 million dollar budget and you know which even that you know we're like wow 60 million that's a low budget movie but um you know i think it's going to be interesting to see how the the pandemic resets the, the calculus for all this because all of these marvel movies weren't able to come out this year they they, they pushed yeah. them back whereas a lot of smaller budget things were coming out and then you know you're seeing now you know wonder woman is having to compete in a space with you know lower budget films or you know more indie flicks and now it's not really passing the muster it's like people are looking at it you know whereas before everybody would been so excited to go out and see wonder woman that they all would have seen it no matter what and yeah. it would have made its money now people are like you know now the buzz is getting out that it's not that great and it's having to compete and so it'll be interesting to see if, how, how marvel does in this new ecosystem yeah you can't have an event film if you can't go to the event right, exactly. <laughs> so, you need a good film now to be able to get people interested and because otherwise they can just flip the switch to the next channel yeah. and or the next service and so like you said i, I can't i i won't root for marvel because it's hard to root for a front runner <laughs> you don't want to root for a corporation that's the number like disney that's the number one thing that can destroy everything else yeah at the same time if they're willing to take what they make and the money they and the prestige they have from those films and do something like WandaVision that's so different and unique, I'm all for it. You know, if they can, if they're willing to take those risks because they can, they can, but based on the money they're making, then sure it works for me. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think that one in the, you know, the Mandalorian, I mean, you know, when they took over the star Wars franchise, I think people were, you know, concerned because they were pumping out so many of them the quality of mm -hmm. brawl was dipping a little bit, but then the fact that they could do something like the Mandalorian with it, I think, it, it, you know, I think for, for fans of, of Star Wars, that it's it's a little bit more encouraging to see. And maybe that's really where this goes. Maybe this is where like WandaVision, Mandalorian, that it's these kind of mini series of, you know, 
you know, six one hour episodes or something like that, that is where these things go. And maybe the big tent movies are, are where, you know, are, 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 will start to fade out a little bit. And, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, I mean, it's still nice to kind of have that movie experience, but mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be interesting to see if maybe that's where, you know, companies like Disney, um, they start to move in that direction with their streaming services. Absolutely. Uh, after Avatar, uh, it was the second week holdovers of Gary Marshall's Valentine's Day, along with Percy Jackson and the Olympian's Lightning Thief and The Wolfman with Benicio Del Toro. I don't think this film is held in very high regard, The Wolfman. Yeah. But I mean, I was looking at it and the script is by Andrew Kevin Walker, who did Seven. And it's directed by Joe Johnston, who did you know Captain America and the, one of my favorite films, The Rocketeer. Yeah. So I feel like I need to revisit this film. I don't have a real clear memory of it. I never saw it. Um, I think I... I, I knew some friends that watched it and they weren't fans of it. And so I just, I skipped it. Um, I, it, it might be interesting to check out. I, I agree with you there. I mean, it felt like at that time, cause you mentioned the Percy Jackson film as well, that at that time it was like, how can we make new franchises? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, let's redo the Wolfman and see if we can make multiple Wolfman movies. And then when this one didn't really take off, they were like, okay, that's it. We're not making any more Wolfman movies. <laughs> and so I, you know, I, I, I kind of wrote it off as that, like, okay, they're just mm-hmm. trying to remake, you know, trying to do another Wolfman franchise and I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll see it later. And I never got around to it. So I am kind of curious to, to know how it went. Yeah, with Joe Johnson behind it, I have to imagine it's at least a good time. Yeah, <laughs> because, for sure. Uh, he, he makes fun action films. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the rest of the chart is varied. Uh, you've got Channing Tatum's romance, Dear John, which I don't have a memory of that either. Um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson as the Tooth Fairy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Crazy Heart with Jeff Bridges, which was in its 11th week in theaters. Um, and it was just about to win uh, the Oscar for uh, Best Actor and, uh, and I think Best Music. Um, so that was why that was doing well. And then From Paris with Love and Edge of Darkness. Do you remember Edge of Darkness? I know the name. I, I like that name sounds familiar, but I don't know if I remember that movie. When I saw this, I was like, what is Edge of Darkness? And then I, I looked into a little bit. It's a Martin Campbell film that stars Mel Gibson as a detective investigating the death of his daughter. And then he runs into a government uh, conspiracy behind it. This was Gibson's first film in eight years at the, at the time, uh, because I guess you could say there was some controversy involving him. <laughs> um, mostly middling reviews on this film uh, didn't exactly launch him back into superstardom. I mean, he hasn't done anything big since then. And now we're talking 2010 now to 2021. The only thing he did that really had any impact, which was when he played Mark Wahlberg's father in Daddy's Home too. <laughs> and uh, wow, talk about some sod casting based on what we know now about those two. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah, because yeah he he did he was the baddie in um the third expendables movie and he was also the baddie in the second machete movie um mm, and yeah, machete kills right and i think that's what happened was after edge of darkness um because now i kind of remember seeing ads for that one i think he was pivoting to this kind of baddie role because of you know all of the controversy surrounding him and it's interesting because everybody talks about cancel culture and all people get canceled all the time and all that but i think mel gibson it might be sort of if, if people are saying there's no such thing as cancel culture <laughs> mel gibson might be like the, the the prime example that they would stand up and say like you know this guy still has a career after all the stuff that he'd done yeah and just um just you know thankfully not as big as he was right right <laughs> so he doesn't have quite the platform he used to have right that's good <laughs> yeah exactly so uh we're gonna take a little break and then we'll be right back to talk about double identity <laughs> Let's 
let's get into this film. Uh, the writer and director of this film is Dennis Dimster Dank, which is an interesting name. Dem- Den- it's a fun name to say, Dennis Dimster Dank. Uh, he had two lengthy runs as director on the My TV Network, uh, doing the shows uh, Desire and Wicked Games. Um, and so, you know, I don't know much about those shows. I don't watch My TV, uh, and I don't definitely don't watch soap operas, which is ZR's. But um, he also had a couple of films under his belt. Um, There's not a lot of detail about his first film, Cat in the Bag, which came out in 1990. Uh, And then he followed up with some indie thrillers. And then his most recent film is The Living, which came out in 2016. Again, none of these have made a big impact. So it's, you know, nobody, I don't think anybody comes to go, oh, this is a Dennis Dimster Dank film. No, nobody knows what a Dennis Dimster Dank film is. So we kind of can come at this film very just open and say, I don't know what I'm looking looking at here. Let's see what happens. Unfortunately, my hopes are not high when the Millennium Films banner comes up at the beginning. I don't know what your experience with Millennium Films is, but I just, I feel like with that and the title card that follows, I'm like, wow, these are like default graphics out of After Effects. And I don't feel like this is going to be a very good movie just off the bat. Yeah, I mean, Millennium, I think I did a count and I think I've like, I've I've reviewed about a thousand films on the site and I think 60 of them are are Millennium Films, which is by far the most of any uh, distribution company. Um, Mm -hmm. And and yeah, it's one of those things where you just, you you don't know. Yeah, when you you see that that banner, as you say, kind of, you know, scrawl, it's written across the screen there, Millennium Films. It's it's that you're definitely you 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 could be in for something, um, and and so and, and I you know the thing with the graphics and things like that it it is amazing sometimes when you I think you know nowadays it was kind of funny is you can keep kind of even see the programs that they're using to create the graphics because now with everybody on YouTube making their own videos you're almost like seeing the the kinds of things that they were using back then to make those that it's like oh, yeah. oh okay that's how, that's you know do that for your YouTube video and now uh, but you know <laughs> different ways to save money i mean you know talking about the director it's possible that you know they were able to get him for a good price and maybe he was already in Bulgaria, or maybe they just said, you know, listen, we need a director for this. Can he keep us under budget? And, you know, we'll get him over there and, and we'll work with him. <laughs> well, we got him over to Sofia, Bulgaria. I don't know if the film was actually shot there. I can't find a lot of details about this film, but it's 1992, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, so this is a period film. So we're jumping back about uh, eight years from when, the, well, eight years, 20 years, 20 years, right? I don't know. I'm not good at math. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so, but we are in a pre-internet age, and uh, although several people have cell phones, so it is a cell phone age. Um, I did not have my first cell phone until about '95, I believe. So, but I'm assuming, yeah, I know I knew people had car phones at least before that. So, I don't think it's unusual. I just don't understand the choice of 1992, and perhaps it's because I'm not a political science scholar and I don't know all about what was happening in the former Soviet Republic, and I don't know even if this was the time of the former Soviet Republic. Uh, and nobody explains that to us in this film. <laughs> it's just there, <laughs> and that's a little confusing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess part of it is they wanted to be able to use the three and a half floppy as a MacGuffin, which doesn't really become a MacGuffin. It, it's just sort of there for a second, and then they they work it. But yeah, I, you know, now that you mention it, I mean, I guess maybe the reason why they said it in '92 was this idea that like the wall had fell, had fallen. You know, the the Soviet Union had 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 broken up, and and it was almost kind of like this lawless period where mm. a lot of cartels and the mafia were were sort of filling the vacuum at that time. But I don't know how different it would be in 2009. There's still a lot of cartels and mafia filling the vacuum in 2009 um, mm. and if you're in it was a made-up 
former Soviet Republic that they were using. So if you're going to use a made up former Soviet Republic, they could get their independence anytime. Um, yeah. You know, if that, so yeah, I don't know why it needed to be 92. And, and I think with the cell phone technology, that looked a little bit more late 90s to me, the way that they, you know, I don't remember, you know, people having cell phones in the 90s, I don't remember them being smaller like that and mm -hmm. having little screens that showed who was calling and things like that. I, I don't remember, um, caller ID, I don't remember quite being that universal at that time, like it, it was kind of in the early 2000s. Yeah, I also would have just liked one line. If one, one person could have explained to me like more about what was happening politically, that would have helped a lot. Yeah. I just, I, you know, you have, a there's a lot of exposition delivered in this film in very non-subtle ways. So just give me a news story, you know, like put, give me a, a, a you know, some anchor saying that, you know, the recently independent you know, Republic of Kyrgyzstan or whatever it is, you know, that would have solved all my problems from understanding why am I here at this time frame? Right. Yeah, I mean, maybe even just like a, 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 you know, some text at the beginning of the movie, you know, just to set the stage, like one paragraph probably would have done it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, either way, we've got our, fr our friend Val Kilmer right off the bat. This is a film where you know, usually what we find with the show is that Val Kilmer is inserted a little later into the film. But here, right off the bat, we've got Kilmer and he's Dr. Nick, right. which, again, if you're a Simpsons fan, immediately you can't <laughs> help but say, hi, Dr. Nick. <laughs> So uh, Dr. Nick is riding uh, with a very nervous driver uh, through Bulgaria, and we find out that he's delivered hundreds of babies. And apparently he's working for something called Doctors Beyond Borders, which is a knockoff of uh, Doctors Without Borders. I don't know. You know I guess that's enough to change it so it's not, not copyright protected. Right. Um, and so he's going along and he's going to go help this baby. He helps deliver this baby. And then um, we've got this woman. And, and this film jumps around a bit. And that's, uh, I think, part of the problem why, why I got confused a lot in this film. Now we're watching this woman who is trying to secretly take photos of a guy. And she gets spotted. And as she's making her getaway, she, Nick is stopped in the, uh, in the street with the car. At first, I lost track of how that car stopped. I was like, why are they here? Right. And then I realized he, he actually said to her, said to his driver, you're driving crazy. Let me drive. Uh, so they get out. And she crosses the street and just full on kisses Dr. Nick in the middle of the street and says, get me out of here. And so this is such a classic trope. I mean, like the meet the girl, in the, you know, and she uses you as cover and gets you out of here. And I'm like, okay, we know obviously what's going to happen in this film. Yeah. This she's trouble. And she's now brought Nick into this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And again, you know, talking about supposed to be 1992, you know, I'm not, a complete expert on on women's fashion um but that outfit definitely did not look 1992 um no. and, and so that that was part of it. and yeah i guess the the the, the idea is that right because she's that, that we find out that she's supposed to she's kind of embedded with this guy um and and i don't know like yeah because they don't really explain it well like is she embedded with him i guess she's in, she's already embedded with him so i guess the wig was supposed to make it so they wouldn't recognize her you know his guys but that kind of didn't make any sense to me either i, I would have thought they would have caught her um doing that but yeah she, she she escaped and yeah now now our guy is like kind of you know suddenly in the midst of all of this yeah, and I can't help but watching this. I was like, how much COVID has ruined movies for me? Because the second she kisses, I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> yes. what are you doing? <laughs> Wear your masks. <laughs> yes. yes, exactly. Yeah, it, it is kind of funny thinking about all of that. Like, yeah, it's it, even commercials now. I, I, I watch a commercial. I'm like, you know, how can they be doing that in this commercial? You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, it, it, I agree with you there. You, 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 it, you, you, mentally, I'm like, yeah, he can't, you know, he's, you know, and of course, he's going to deliver a baby. We don't even know how sanitized he is to do that. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, he help, offers to help her, and she takes this as a come on, you know, which, you know, anytime you deal with Val Kilmer, it's probably going to be a come on mm-hmm. and an attempt to flirt because he's a huge flirt in, that, in all the movies that he does. Um, but they continue on, they let her out, and they're stopped by a, a roadblock. Um, and so this is where things get a little complicated because they're stopped and they think that Dr. Nick is an Englishman named John Charter. And so they take him prisoner. This is where I started. And and this is bad when we're right off the bat. We're like, wait, what's going on? Because I started to think like, well, is he this guy? He's pretending to be Dr. Nick and he's actually John Charter. And the film doesn't really help us in much and try to figure that out as we go along. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the the weird thing about it was like, so, so there's the roadblock initially. So the guy, the, the, the guy can't drive Val Kilmer to his, his wife because, you know, she's pregnant. So he bribes the, 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 the guard to get through. Mm-hmm. And then what I didn't get was, okay, you know, there, there's this roadblock here. You know, there's this curfew and you know that nobody should be leaving at any time. Why are they driving back through that night after the baby's born? Why not just spend the night there and yeah. go in the morning when everything's okay? Um, and so, so then he, yeah, he gets stopped and they think he's this John Charter guy because they're like, what are you doing here on the street at this time? Like you have no other reason to be here. Um, yeah. And and that just didn't make make any sense to me. I mean, maybe again with the with the COVID thing where we've had, um, and then also with some of the um the, the protests where there've been uh, curfews uh, around. Like you know, people, you know, we we're kind of a little bit more used to them now, I guess. But um, you know, here in Philadelphia, if there's a curfew, I'm not like gonna try to just go out and do whatever. And absolutely not. Yeah, and it's but in Eastern <laughs> Europe, I'm really not going to just go and do whatever. Everybody's got guns. Right, <laughs> Everywhere they go. So Somebody has a rifle. It's like, you're not going to mess around. Yeah. And they didn't even establish that there was a reason for him to come back. Right. It's not like they went, well, I have to be at this meeting or I'm right. needed for that. It was just like, well, we're just going to drive on back despite all of what's going on. Yeah. I mean, they'd been drinking too. So it's like, you know, yeah. they're partying and drinking. It's like, you know, it, it seemed like it was late at night. So it's like, you know, why not just crash there? You know, I mean, I, I, maybe they didn't have a bed for him, but still, like, I just, I, you know, the, the couch would have been nice for just a little bit. But yeah, so that that part of it, I think, was initially, and that's what sometimes happens with these direct-to-video movies, is that the scripts are either multiple people have written them, or they don't go through enough rewrites, or things happen where they just, they put them in and they don't realize, like, oh, you know what, that doesn't play well, and at that point, it's too late. They've already been yeah. shooting it, and they can't do anything about it. Yeah, and we're going to see a lot of that. Because <laughs> this film is really based on coincidence more than anything, because so much has to happen randomly for any of this film to work out in right. the end. Uh, right off the bat, from the fact that he met her in the street like that, and then the fact that, um, you know, that this guy, John Charter, is involved and that he could be, he goes back to the, uh, where he's staying. Right. So if those two things don't happen, there's no movie. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like, what happens with this John Charter story? And we'll get into the whole John Charter storyline. What there? What happens to that if he's not in those two spots at that specific time? Right. Right. <laughs> that whole storyline makes no sense then. Right. Right. And I think they were trying to go like north by northwest with it. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, you know, one, they don't have the expansive ability to do Hitchcock on that. Level. Um, and and the other part too is that yeah, you you get these inconsistencies where you know you're just like you know you know. And, and I think they were trying to make it seem like he would be more adventurous because, you know, not everybody when they're, you know, would just go, um, you know, as, as a doctor would just go to a, a chaotic part of the world and, and be a doctor. So, like, there has to be some sort of adventurous rogue spirit in him. But mm-hmm. it's still just kind of, I think it was a, they, they, yeah, I don't know, there's, well, I think we'll probably get into it in a little bit more. But, um, yeah, it just... You're right. At least the part of the, 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 the writing aspects of it, it just, yeah. It, and, and that happens a lot with these DTV films. It's just, it's not always even. Mm. 
And so now while he's rotting away in jail, <laughs> because for, for reasons, um, now apparently diamond smuggling is part of this film in addition. So we've got another layer on top of this that there's diamond smuggling um, just randomly thrown in there because there's no, we don't know who these people are who are talking about diamonds that just introduced right off the bat. But we do find out that this main bad guy, whose name is Sarek in the end, has a girlfriend. Uh, at least we believe it's his girlfriend. Could be his daughter for all we know, based on the ages. But uh, there's something very suspicious about her. Uh, they're in the bedroom. Uh, they're, uh, I think they're in a hotel. But it doesn't seem like it's their home that they later are in. Um, and he's writing a note based about something he's going to do. And she walks by and he covers up like he's in school and he doesn't want her copying his test score. Right. <laughs> I was like, what, like, what do you do? He actually uses both hands right. to cover up the paper and like looks at her at, like as she walks by. Obviously there's something going on between, you know, with this her especially, and he doesn't trust anybody, right. which is important because there's a whole lot of distrust in this film. No, I don't even know in the end who honestly is working with who. Right. Right. Well, cause she is right. She's the woman that kisses Val Kilmer in the first scene just mm-hmm. because the black wig on. And, and so we're supposed to believe that, that anybody from his group that sees her wouldn't recognize her with the black wig on, be, even though he's been, he's, they're obviously affectionate enough that they've been together long enough that yeah. his whole gang does know her. They recognize who mm-hmm. she is. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I haven't tried out, you know, spotting people with wigs on to see if like, I have, if they're people I know, like, Oh, that's something, you know, but usually you can kind of tell like, okay, that's someone with a wig. That's, that's so-and-so with a wig. You know, what are they doing wearing that wig? That's weird. And now they're taking pictures of us. What are they, what are they doing? You know? I'd, um, so that part of it did seem like it was stretching credulity a bit. Yeah. And I, I mean, I will admit I, my first viewing of this film, I lost interest <laughs> partially, partially through because of how confusing it was. Yeah. I did not catch originally that it was the same person. I oh. will admit that. Yeah. And, um, but again, I may not have been paying enough attention <laughs> to realize it was the same person because, um, you know, I was like, wait, that's her. And like, and then once I saw her again in the black wig, I was like, obvious. It's her. What am I talking about? It's so, it's so obvious. She has a very distinct face that you, you couldn't miss. Yeah. What what actually tipped it off for me is I watched the trailer um, before oh, okay. before I watched the movie, so it actually outlined some of those parts. So I knew <laughs> like going in who she was because the trailer told me who she is. I I think she was in a uh, Coyote Ugly. I think that's the, the yes yeah. So so but I recognize. Her. I mean that's the thing with these direct to video movies that are made in Romania or Bulgaria or wherever. They usually just pick sort of like a, a beautiful you know Eastern European model and just have her play the part. And I think because this this actress needed to do a little bit more, they actually got an actor i mean she's still eastern european but who had been in some parts and done some other stuff but usually she's just meant to be pretty and be like rescued and saved and all of that mm-hmm. well she does a good job at that <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so we're back with dr nick who is released um because the story checks out and uh, paulo comes and paulo is his buddy at, at dr's bmp orders yeah. did you catch the look on his face when paulo shows up uh, on uh, when on nick's face in the jail cell the big smile that breaks out i'm like <laughs> you were just stuck in an Eastern European jail overnight and could have been shot and killed. And you're just like, ah, right. Right. I think that's supposed to like, give us a sense that this guy doesn't care as much that he's supposed to be this like adventurous type where the rest of us, we, we put ourselves in that shoes and we're like, this, this would be enough for me to be like, I'm packing my bags and I'm going back to America. Like I'm done. You know, this is it. I'm done here. <laughs> you know, and we're supposed not, to be like, not Dr. Nick. Right. Exactly. He's the roguish adventurous type, I guess. Right. <laughs> Well, either way, once he gets out of jail, he's not safe because uh, Sarek wants him taken care of. And um, so they've got um, these two guys, these two thugs that are going to take care of him. And um, but 
first they've got to get Nick and Paolo to this fancy event. I have to say, Kilmer in a tuxedo is a unique look. Yeah. He does, and at least in this film, he's always been a guy, at least in his younger age, very sleek, very, you know, um, dynamic, charismatic. Here, he doesn't look right in a tuxedo, in my opinion. I don't know what you, how you felt about it. Yeah, and I think it was, again, it was supposed to be this idea that this Dr. Nick guy is this roguish, adventurous type, and so the, the tuxedo is not supposed to to suit him as well, I guess, or something, but it was, it was a hard look to see because you're right. Like we, we think of Val Kilmer like the saint or, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of Val Kilmer who would just look great in a tuxedo and just sort of take over a room when he goes in there. And he wasn't supposed to be that here. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, but I agree. It was, it was a little interesting to, to see him put, supposed to be this uncomfortable, like, you know, doctor type who's not used to being around these people. Yeah. And he also runs into the blonde, the woman from the beginning that he kissed, and this time she's a blonde, yeah. and apparently she's in cahoots with this guy Charter, yeah. and but she can't talk to him. She's I can't do this right now, uh, which I wasn't sure if that was an emotional thing or a mission thing. You know, like she plays it kind of both ways. Yeah. Her relationship to Nick in this film, it's a little fast. Like, yeah, <laughs> I see no reason why they are so connected so quickly. Can you? Were you able to see anything there? No, I think we were supposed to just take it for granted that that she would be smitten with him from the beginning. And um, I, I, you, I, I didn't see anything. I guess what what they said. I think it was like later in the film. There's this, this sort of this throwaway line where she talks about how much she admires the fact that he saves people's life for a living, that he's mm. traveling around and being a doctor and, and she admires that, that turns her on, I guess, which, you know, to each their own, I guess. Yeah. But she didn't know that. Right. No, you're right. <laughs> but I, yeah. That's a good point. I, she, you know, she did, did. Yeah. He didn't say he was a doctor in the car. Did he, when they were, no, yeah. Not until after she kissed him. <laughs> right. Right. So, yeah. So I don't know. Paulo and uh, Nick leave the uh, big event. He gave a big speech. Everybody was happy. And then Paulo reveals that to Nick that he has the divorce papers that his wife wants him to sign. So now we knew, we know why Nick is here. We get his backstory. He's running away from his divorce. His wife is apparently hooking up with some plastic surgeon. I guess we're supposed to, when that's that line, we're supposed to believe that his wife is a gold digger or some sort. Yeah. Uh, we're not supposed to be a fan of his wife. And we're supposed to have sympathy for Dr. Nick at this point, which I guess that works. It, you know, I, I don't know. You know, Val Kilmer, He's a little too slick for that. I, in my opinion, I would think that he probably was responsible for some of what happened in this marriage, especially when he ran away to Europe to avoid getting divorced. Yeah. I would think that perhaps he has some fault in this marriage falling apart. Yeah, and I think if he's a, sort of this adventurous type, maybe he was married to the job too much. Maybe he was distant mm -hmm. or not available. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you there. I think that, you know, he's, um, yeah, the, the idea of going to Eastern Europe in, um, in this sort of lawless area, uh, third world area to be a doctor yeah i agree it's a it's a little bit extreme and so yeah it may, maybe colors him a little bit more than the than the fact that she's with a plastic surgeon yeah well they're sitting around having drinks you know talking about the divorce papers and for some reason nick gets up to go wash up right. I, I wasn't sure what happened there like he's doing that classic like splash water on your face to wake up i guess he's got to overcome the the emotional damage of getting the divorce papers but while he's doing that paulo gets murdered by garot out in the main room 
again, this film and coincidences, this guy takes his sweet time killing Paolo when this guy, Nick, could come out of the bathroom at any moment. Yeah. Yeah, it was very like what, you know, I, I remember on a, when I used to watch Mystery Science Theater 3000, they would talk about plot convenience theater. And it was like <laughs> it, a very loose way to get Nick out of the room to have this murder happen was to oh, yeah. just, yeah, like, oh, he's going to go wash up and he's going to be doing that for a while while the, the, the friend's being strangled in the other room. Yeah, that was, <laughs> it was a little bit like a little, little convenient in that sense. Well, Nick comes back and he gets conked on the head and gets taken captive by Sarek's men. <laughs> and they are waking him up with a cattle prod <laughs> with easily one of the most ridiculous electrical effects I've ever seen in a film. Yes. I mean, this cattle prod shoots electricity like the Emperor in Star Wars. I, was gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't think any cattle prod does that. I'm pretty sure it's a contact thing with, with cattle prods. I've never been, never been struck with a cattle prod, but I'm almost certain that you have to touch somebody with it in order to, to hurt them. Right. Yeah, it definitely looked like some kind of like sci-fi futuristic thing. And, and you almost wonder if maybe they were shooting a sci-fi film or something nearby. There, there's something that, that with that that they, they figure, well, let's use it for this film as well. And, uh, you know, we've already got the prop, so let's let's try it out. And uh, um, you know, we'll add in the electrical effect after because, yeah, I agree. It was kind of funny. It also seemed like the tuxedo coat would have protected a little bit against the, the electricity. Yeah, he wasn't touching his skin. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, again, I don't know much about cattle prods, but uh, now I'm curious to find out if you have to do direct skin t contact in order to have it to be effective. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to test it, though. No, no me neither. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Nick is tortured by the bad guys, uh, which, and they believe he's John Charter. So the, the confusion here is clear. This guy that they're looking for, John Carter, who I'm not sure John Charter is at this point. He's, we haven't really established why they're looking for him, uh, but they are looking for John Charter. And so Sarah says okay fine bury this guy i don't care kill him and so they take nick out into the woods and make him dig his own grave these two guys would rather be doing anything but this right <laughs> right yes. yeah. i mean the one the one guy's doing a crossword puzzle right. the other one's talk it's forget he's like oh i forgot to buy bread right. like you know just guys who had no focus on the task at hand <laughs> yes yes and i thought this was kind of like maybe one of the best scenes in the film from the mm -hmm. where like directed video movies don't usually have this kind of like real deep like intense sort of you know tension part of it where it's like you know i mean the idea you kind of put yourself in it like can you imagine like having to dig your own grave while these two mm. eastern european guys are you know and you and you're like what would i do in this situation and and and, and it like really built it up like what you know how is he going to get out of this what is he going to do and like you know i it's like it seems like one of the worst ways to go to have to sit there and dig your own grave and wait oh, for, yeah. you know and so it was like for me i was like wow this is for direct to video you don't usually get something of this quality of this sort of tension um and i don't know if, if we ever get another moment like this again in the film i think it was like kind of the one time that it happened but i yeah. you know and 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 i i think you know it, it is again this idea that like he's supposed to be this roguish type who wouldn't just you know, dig his own grave and die easily, that he's going to be the fly in the ointment. And that's where we start to see that here. Um, but it, it was, it was, a, it was a bit of an intense scene that sort of, you know, it, I think direct video has trouble maintaining that kind of tension throughout where it's like Hitchcock, you know, he's got complete control over his environment and he can make his actors do what he needs them to do. He can get the budget to do what he needs to do. And it's all, so he can make a whole movie of scenes like that. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas like if you get it once in direct to video, sometimes that's enough to, to make the movie like go beyond <laughs> like a five out of 10 to, you know, some, or some, you know, kind of push it into the, I, 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 I was okay with it. Then I, I hated it kind of uh, category. <laughs> yeah, I have to say it's not a bad way he handled it because what he does is as he's digging, he takes his watch and sets an alarm and then throws the watch into the woods. And so that's partial, partially a distraction. 
and then he buries himself in the dirt in the grave light some light dirt and since these two guys are so distracted by their own lives they don't notice that he's not there and they think that he ran away because they hear the beeping of the watch and he's not in in digging the grave so and then once they leave then he gets up out of the grave and and runs which that's pretty clever i have to say i give it to the the writer on this one which is also the director nice job yeah yeah i agree i think it's again you know it's one of those things where like because we saw you know er, you know we've been talking about earlier parts of the film where the the writing i don't know if lazy is the right word but you know there's you know you know a velcomer is going to wash his face and that's the time that the guy gets killed you know it's like you know kind of very you know not that well thought out just sort of like let's get kill how can we get kilmer out of the room he's out of the room. Good. Let's cover the murder. Whereas this was something that they, they worked on. They said, how do we get him out of the situation? Let's come up with something. Um, yeah. Again, you just, you don't always see that in direct to video for sure. Mm, not at all, but he is caught up with by the gunman. Um, and you think he's going to get caught at the last second, but he tricks him, gets him around the car and then hits him in the head with a rock <laughs> and then just stares at him. <laughs> if you hit a guy who has a gun on you with a rock and he doesn't go down, I hit him again real quick. Like I don't stop hitting <laughs> like, or I try to get that gun away from him. He just stands there. Like, I, I don't understand this. Yeah. I was thinking about that too. Cause I was, you know, again, putting myself in, in that position saying like, what would I be doing in that situation? And I think once I've mustered the, the intensity to hit the guy once with the brick and knowing that this guy tried to kill me, I would probably just keep hitting just, just, out of, you know, sort of, I don't know if instinct's the right word, but just sort of like, you know, sort of just doing it. And, and yeah. it, it was weird that he just sits there and watches it. And I guess it's because they needed this actor to be, they, they had written this guy into the film for, which I don't know that he necessarily needed to be in the film beyond that. He, you know, I think he could have been killed off and we would have been okay with it. But um, yeah, it was, uh, they, I guess they decided they needed him around. So, you know, Val Kilmer does something that didn't make any sense when he's before that doing things that you're like, wow, that's really, you know, crazy that he's thinking to do that. Yeah. And the thing is, like, once he hits him once and then the guy's fine, they wrestle. Yeah. Now, this is the first of several moments in this film where Dr. Nick is way more capable than he really should be. Because, I mean, we have to remember, this is 2010. So Val Kilmer is 50 years old at this point. I mean, I don't know how old this character is supposed to be, but he himself is 50 years old. And he is able to fight off this Russian thug who whose job is to kill people. I'm pretty sure that this doctor who's, you know, not, not exactly in top physical shape, as we can see, would be able to do this. And yet he does this and much more in this film. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't think it would have taken much for the first blow to the head to maybe stun the guy and he's not thinking, maybe he's wavering. And, and so at least show that there's some sort of hampered ability on that guy's part um, that, that would, would even the odds or even the score a little bit. So then it makes more sense that, that Nick can take him out. That he, you know, he got the drop on him. You know, the guy wasn't thinking clearly. He wasn't, you know, I think we find out later that they were, they're cops or something like that. And so maybe he's moonlighting, so he's tired. He's, you know, so you, you can kind of do those things, but it, they never really give us any of that. It's more like Nick is able to out fight this guy when we have no reason to know why he would be able to fight somebody. Yeah, or believe it at all. Right, yeah which we'll talk more about later because there's a lot of suspension of disbelief if you, if you need to follow this film. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, Nick escapes and he goes to the embassy. And this embassy guy, there's a, he, runs, he talks to this guy, Dr. You know, Mr. Pimston or Pimstone, I think. Well, he is so super sketchy. Yeah. I mean, there's, I don't know how Nick wouldn't be like, well, something's up with this guy. Yeah. But he, he, he stands there and waits. And so the, the super sketchy embassy guy calls uh, the British guy from earlier, which we find out his name is Sterling, and tells him that Nick is there so he can come get him. 
But then he sees he's wanted. Nick is in the office and he's looking around as he's you know waiting, and he sees that he's wanted by police. In a Bulgarian newspaper that's in English. Right. Right. How, what? <laughs> like I get that we need to know this, but you know, come on. <laughs> There's not going to be an English language Bulgarian newspaper here. I'm sorry, it doesn't happen. Well, that and the fact that the murder happened the night before. Now, I don't know about you, but I mean, I remember growing up and like the newspaper, like I couldn't get the sports scores for the West Coast game, you know, <laughs> the morning paper. Yep. I don't know how they got this, you know, that soon that that murder happened and they got the picture in the paper so quickly. So yeah, another one of those plot convenience devices. Front page news the next day and translated into English. Yeah, I don't buy it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, either way, he makes his escape again, and this time vaults a turnstile in front of the embassy. Which, I mean, come on, like Val Kilmer at fifty years old is not vaulting turnstiles. Yeah, <laughs> it's so obviously a stunt <laughs> <laughs> double, and you know this is starts off a huge chase scene, which. I mean, it's got some energy to it um, because he buys a train ticket. He gets spotted. He jumps off the train, evades the train, which was crazy. He like dives across the train track and then up onto a platform within you know inches yeah. and then escapes into the crowd. So like I said, again, this is 50-year-old Val Kilmer. <laughs> I don't buy any of this. And mainly because when you watch him run, he's running shoulders back in a light jog and outruns cops, soldiers, and everybody chasing him. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that, that scene where he dodges the train and climbs up just in time. And, and it's like, you know, he's got this suit on that he, he's, he's keeping it buttoned, I guess, because, yeah, you don't want it flailing behind you. But the way it's buttoned, it seems like it's a little tight. Like it, this, the suit is not really – it's very constricting. Um, yeah. And the other thing, too, is he's supposed to be from New York City. Now, you know, I, I'm originally from Maine, but I've been here in Philadelphia for a short period, you know, for, for like five years. And I've been on the subway I don't know how many times where the police have been looking for somebody on the subway. Him being in New York City, he would know that's the first place that the police would look for. You're trying to get a train out of town. They're going to go look for you on the train. Like, that's not going to be a great escape place. Like, that's at least my thought, you know. Uh, So that also didn't make any sense that he thought he was going to get out of town by hopping on the train to Prague. Yeah, the first person he sees when he walks into the train station is a police officer (laughs) standing there. (laughs) You're on the front page of the newspaper. What are you thinking? And and how are you going to get out of town? Well, it's going to be through the train, probably. That's like your first place to go. So, you know, (laughs) let's go check the train and see if this guy wearing a tuxedo coat is sitting on the train. You know, it's like, yeah, um, yeah, that that did make any sense. That that was his first thought was I'm going to get off on the train to escape. When when he was doing these other things, like he he creatively gets out of the situation where he was almost killed. Um, yeah, he, he yeah. puts himself right into danger. Right, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Well, as he's running around inside the train station, Sterling, the English guy, spots him and gets him out of there. He hides him in, um, in, a, in a tunnel or some sort. And now everybody's calling him Charter, and he doesn't correct anybody right. at first. Like he just just goes along with it. And I was like, wait, is he John Charter? At this point, I thought, oh, it's like some sort of like amnesia thing or something like that, where he didn't remember he was charter now it's all coming back but no like he's not charter and yet he just goes along with it right yeah and this was for me i think where we start to see sort of the movie get i don't know if lazy is the right term but you know 
we, we, we just see this scene where he's digging his own grave and he has to think his way out of that. And he does, he, you know, he, he gets his way out of it. Whereas now he's in this, this foot chase with all these police officers and he, he gets rescued essentially by this Sterling guy. Like he doesn't have to come up with a way to get out of it. The, 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 the plot takes him out of it on his own. And he doesn't, he never actually has to escape. And so, yeah. And I think, you know, like, like he, I think he does tell them he's not charter and they don't believe him. And he's just like, okay, I'm going to try to go with it and get out of town, I guess is what he's thinking. If he, if he, if he fakes it, you know, the, the whole fake it to make it, I guess, line. He's like, thinking maybe he can, he can do that. But yeah, it was that idea that he, he, he never, the, the plot essentially takes him out of that bad situation. He never has to figure his way out of it, um, which I no. thought was, you know, again, where we start to kind of lose the intensity of that opening scene. And I think what ends up happening in director video is that that's how it generally is, that the writing doesn't always have to be as on point. Hmm. Well, you know, when you say writing not on point, I definitely agree because then they say, well, we need to get you out of here. Right. And we need to get you through security. And so we're going to clean you up and, you know, so that you can get out of here. They, they don't cut his hair. They don't shave him. Why? Two things you can easily change about a person's appearance and they do nothing. Right. They just give him a clean suit. (laughs) Right. Right. And so, which, you know, tells me that, you know, again, they were kind of in a situation where, they, they, because of it being a direct-to-video movie, they knew that they were going to have to shoot scenes out of sequence. And they're like, well, there's no way we can mess with his hair or his beard because what if we have to shoot those earlier scenes later or whatever? And so, and so of course, we're left with the situation of like, well, why aren't they doing that? And it's like, well, because of the way the movie's made, that's why they're not doing it, even though it makes no sense for the actual story. None at all. <laughs> well, they bring him back to the hotel or the conference or whatever's happening. It's again, it's not very clear because that, that location, I think does like triple duty at one point. It's, it's, it represents a couple of different things. And the guy with the head wound from before catches up to Val Kilmer or Dr. Nick or whatever you want to call him. And something weird happens here with him is, are we supposed to understand that he has brain damage from the hit on his head? Because at one point he wanders off. And then at one point he goes through the metal detector and then Val Kilmer turns around, walks back and he goes, this is confusing. And then he has sunglasses in his pocket. Right. Cause I thought, yeah, I thought the whole point was that Val Kilmer was trying to get him to go through the metal detector. So his gun would set off the metal detector. Right. Right. And then it turns out he just had sunglasses. And so it didn't make any sense that he would be, you know, like standing there. Right. Worried about not going through again. Cause he's got the, yeah, that didn't make any, and it wasn't like he did, like he really got the, you know, he, 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 uh, dump them like it's like they were still there all these dudes go back through the metal detector so yeah that that didn't make any sense either i don't know what what happened there yeah and then like the next scene his head is healed completely so if it was a real damage to his head or brain or anything it healed up really quickly one scene later (laughs) so so i didn't i definitely didn't understand it but either way after uh he ditches his uh you know head wound harry he uh katrine the blonde or brunette or depending on what part of the film we're in uh, she intercepts him and so she takes him up to the room in the hotel i guess again not quite sure the locations in this place because they all look alike and she takes his photo for a passport, which they just did at the headquarters with Sterling. Right. Why? Right. Because I, I guess she was going to do it on her own, I guess, outside of 
that group, she was going to make her own passport for them. I, I don't know. It was, yeah. It, and I mean, the location part of it, that is something that direct-to-video movies do a lot on purpose. Like they, mm -hmm. they don't want us to get a good sense of the locations because they want to be able to reuse things. And so, you know, two people will be shooting at each other and you really have no idea where in relation to each other they are when they're shooting at each other. Um, and so, yeah, that, that happens a lot it, where you just, you're just like, where are we now? Where we don't, yeah, because they because they needed to be, um, they they needed to be a little bit not as clear for the sake of being able to use those locations multiple times. Well, even if that's the case, so you know, we we're but we know where that's supposed to be, and we we can, we're like okay, whatever, we're anywhere. Whether why is she so into him so fast? Mm -hmm. They start making out so hard i'm i'm i assumed we were gonna have a sex scene at this point right uh because you, you got this beautiful woman and val kilmer and they're like some of the most aggressive kissing i think i've ever seen on film <laughs> big open mouth like just disturbing kissing and and then she quickly leaves yeah. are, are we supposed to know that they have a past relationship because otherwise why is this so intense yeah i agree i agree it was it was it was really weird that that um we're supposed to think that she's very attracted to him or something like that, but it did. It kind of just came out of nowhere. And again, I think it's one of those things where like these movies, I mean, I don't know if Val Kilmer, if he's doing the part because he's supposed to be having her as a love interest. That's what he wants to, you know, I don't know if that's how they get a lot of these actors to do these films is that they get the beautiful love interest. And so it's like, we just got to get it in there. We got to make it happen. Um, mm. You know, if they're trying to go for this sort of sexy Bond spy thriller kind of thing, which that's what I thought it was. Yeah, and the thing is, he's not you know a sexy Bond spy thriller. He's you know <laughs> no. he's he's a doctor who's been thrust into this you know Cary Grant North by Northwest style, and um, you know uh, yeah, I agree with you. That that was again. I think sometimes with these direct video movies, the pacing is not always. Uh, what you'd want and so things just sort of happen out of nowhere and um, they don't have time to develop a relationship with those two so it's like let's just give them the relationship but then of course it doesn't feel right as you go through the film yeah i will note that i just f found that they were dating for several years oh okay oh well then that <laughs> explains it then yeah so that you know probably explains a lot of it you know maybe how she got the part or maybe how they got the part together okay that that kind of you know yeah now 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 we get a lot of it so doesn't help the plot. No. Doesn't make sense in the plot, but at least you understand from the film perspective what, <laughs> right. what's going on there. Okay, that oh. makes sense. <laughs> so next morning, he's still in his suit, just sitting in his room. Did he stay up all night? Maybe. I don't know. Can't tell. <laughs> he goes downstairs and he picks up a package for John Charter. Uh, you know, he says, I'm John Charter, and is there anything for me? And he gets this floppy disk that you mentioned before, the three and a quarter disk. I think it's three and a quarter. Um, it's been so long, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> and he gets a key to John Charter's room saying that he lost his key. And so he goes back and does some snooping, finds some pictures in the room. Now this, again, I mean, this movie just con continuously confuses me. Katrine calls him in John Charter's room. Why? Right. Well, so I think we find out later on in the film that she is sort of embedded with the the Brits or whatever. And so I guess once they find out he's in the room, which I believe they find out because the front desk woman is in on it. That's the thing with these movies is everybody's in on it. That's the problem. So it's like the front mm -hmm. desk woman, I think sold him out to one of the, one of Sterling's men. And she must've known somehow. I don't know if maybe, you know, I don't, I don't know how she would have known that. that they, exactly. That's, it's really yeah. stretching things for her to know because he knows. Right. Because don't they then send the big Russian dude? 
I, I don't, that's a good point. I don't remember if it was the Russian dude. You, no, because you're right. The Russian dude was there too. The he had, right. He had to escape past the. Yeah. So, may, so, so did she know from the, the, the boy, the, the guy, the, the, the baddie that he was, was seeing? Is that what he, you know, found out? But the, then she's outside in the car. Right. Right. So, yeah. it's One <laughs> of it makes sense. No, it's one of those like spy movies things where everybody knows everything and we're just supposed to accept that everybody knows everything. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is again not. This is 1992. Not not a lot of advanced communication tools available to people. Right. Uh, you couldn't you know tracking would only work so well. And you know, and she's like, I'm outside, but she knows that he's in John Charter's room. Right. That's very strange. Yeah. 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 More more of that plot convenience theater where it just exactly yeah. <laughs> <sighs> this movie. Well, so Katrine um, gets some help from this guy named Thomas who. He just randomly shows up at times in this film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, a real convenient character. He's anytime anything has to be done. Hey, where's Thomas? Oh, there he is, right there. Yeah, the old fixer type character. Yeah. <laughs> they throw the jacket from that uh, that he got from Sterling that uh, Nick got from Sterling onto Thomas and send him out right. to try to trick Sterling off his trail. Right. Meanwhile, Katrine gets John to her friend uh, Ludwig's safe house. And we find out all about the jewelry plan. Yeah. And so, okay, now we kind of, at least now we kind of have an understanding of what's going on in this film, which is nice because up until this point, you could have told me anything was the plot. And I'd be like, <laughs> sure, why not? You know, I mean, it all goes together because I can't tell anything that's happening at this point. Right. We also find out that Nick was framed for Paolo's murder, which I don't think we understood until that point. Yeah. I knew we knew there was a murder, but now that he's been framed for it, we understand yeah. that that's, that's the problem. That's why Nick is on the run. Yeah. So then we find out about Alan Jacobs, who, for some reason, I thought was a famous guy. I, I don't know. I looked at him I'm like, this guy feels like he should be famous. Right, like, right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> like, this is that where they got the second actor with a name in the movie. But no, he's not. He's just some guy. Yeah. Uh, I didn't really look up his background, but I definitely didn't recognize the name. And he meets with Sarek and meets Katrine, obviously, because she's always around when Sarek is doing his business, you know, because she's everywhere. Right. Because <laughs> she was literally just with Nick at Ludwig's safe house right. and now she's immediately with Sarek at this meeting with Jacobs she she maybe she is two people maybe there's a blonde and a brunette version yeah I mean I, the, the outfit changes too. outfit changes hair and makeup that she's able to do very quickly to go from one place to another um yeah it's uh it, it, it I mean definitely you know if, if she's supposed to be you know a secret agent she's the best of the best for <laughs> based on what she's able to do how great would it have been in a film titled Double Identity if she was twins right Right. That would have been fantastic. Yeah. I mean, and it's common to see that kind of thing in a movie like this. So I am surprised that, yeah, that, you know, like, yeah, usually like one of them dies. Right. And then you, you, mm-hmm. the other one shows up and it's like, I thought you were dead. Well, now that was my twin, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that would have been a great little way to explain all these problems that this film has. Right. And... Yes. Oh, well. Yeah. In the sequel, double, double, double identity. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Sarek and Alan Jacobs and Katrina are meeting and they are near a deal for Sarek to supply Jacob with diamonds because apparently, and you know, I don't know much about diamond dealing, but apparently there's a cartel who I guess is British because all the guys in the cartel are British who, um, meanwhile, these guys are not, I mean, maybe there's people above them that are handling the diamond distribution, but they seem really focused on the surveillance side of things. Right, exactly. They're not doing a lot of diamond business. Right. Um, and if they know all about this, why are they just sitting on the sidelines? Why not just and they're willing to kill people. So why not right. just come in and kill these guys and right. take over Sarek's business? Doesn't right. make sense. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, they're close to a deal that Sarek is going to supply Jacob with diamonds from Kyrgyzstan or whatever it's called right. um, and take out the, the cartel's side of the business. 
Well, in the meanwhile, Nick is picking up these photos and he contacts the real John Charter, which I'm like, wait a second. So there is a John Charter in this film. Right. And it's this guy who looks kind of like uh, uh, Yorma Tacone from the Lonely Island. I was like, oh, <laughs> it's the European Yorma Tacone. Um, well, they set up a meeting. And so I'm like, okay, so there is a Nick and there is a John Charter. So I no longer have to believe that they're the same guy. Because that's for a while I thought, oh, this is an amnesiac Nick. Who, what is John Charter? And I would have accepted that. That's a completely legitimate thriller thing to do is to have him forget who he was. Yeah. Didn't, they didn't want to do that. Right, right, exactly. Instead, Nick follows uh, John Charter. And this is, like you said, the, um, the grave digging escape was a really solid scene. I think this is a really clever ruse that they use here because John Charter tricks Nick to follow him into Sarek's house right. and then traps him there with Sarek. Yes. Yes. I thought that was a really good technique that they, that they pulled there. And again, it's one of those situations where um, he does not have to find his way out of it. That um, he is, you know, first Katrine is helping him escape. And then when it doesn't work out with Katrine helping him escape that like, I guess he gets bailed out by the police raiding the place. Um, so he, he never has to, it's another one of those situations where, yeah, it, it, like they, they did the really clever work to get him stuck in there, but then they didn't do the clever work to get him out. Like they didn't, you know, he didn't come up with a way to escape somehow. Or, I mean, I think even if he just climbed out a window, we would have been, you know, it might have been okay, but yeah, absolutely. You know, or put on a Groucho Marx glasses and mustache. And walk <laughs> At least it would have been something, you know, as opposed exactly. to being rescued. Um, Again, yeah. I have to say the sequence is incredibly long. Yeah. From the walk of following him on a bus, off a bus, down a street, around a street, up a street, you know, yeah. and then throughout the whole house waiting and, and hiding. And this sequence probably takes about 15 minutes, which is way too long for the sequence. Yeah, I felt the same way about the foot chase from the embassy to onto the train all that day. They both were just a little bit longer than they needed to be. It's almost like they, they were padding the film, which, mm -hmm. you know, the movie was 97 minutes long. It didn't need padding. You know, it could have, no. it could have lost about seven minutes. It could have gotten, you know, <laughs> could have been shorter. So it felt like they were padding things out with those two scenes. Easily. And I think they were just afraid of not having enough action, which that is a problem with direct video with when it comes to these suspense films is that, you know, it's much easier to make a movie where you have an action scene every 10 to 15 minutes and just blow up mm. cars and helicopters and, and that kind of thing. Whereas when you're trying to focus on the suspense and the tension, you know, it's harder to, to keep that going for that a period of time, um, especially when you have li limited resources. So they start to pad things out, which of course, that makes us a little bit more like, like you said, I mean, it was a really clever idea that they did to get the guy in, you know, get um, Nick stuck in that, that house, but to get there, the, the fact that we had to go through how many bus transfers and, and, you know, climbing up <laughs> walls and things like that to get there, it was a bit much. I will say, I was thought it was kind of weird that Sarek, who is a diamond smuggler, I think, as, as, as I believe that's his job, lives in a very modest house. Yes. <laughs> like, like, nothing about that was per particularly interesting for a diamond smuggler. Right, right. I think it had two stories, maybe, like, and like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, you know, it was definitely like they, they definitely did not get, you know, they had the really nice house out in the, the country there, but I guess they, when trying to find something in the city for him to take buses to get to, they, they had trouble finding something that was available. So as you said, they uh, they almost catch him, but then the police break in. Ludwig right. called in some favors and and got um, you know him taken by the police. And we find out that there is no John Charter after all. That guy is just a guy named Finney, I believe his name was. And they made up John Charter to keep Sarek busy focusing on somebody who didn't exist, so that they could take the heat off of Katrine. Yeah. 
Um, and it just so happened that Nick showed up. And so they assigned the, the character to Nick. Yeah. And now Nick is done and he can leave. And I'm like, oh, great. Okay. So movie's over. <laughs> Solved. <laughs> Problem solved. Yeah. Um, but, you know, obviously we have a lot of loose ends to wrap up here. Yeah. Not to mention the fact, like, what happens with Katrine now? <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, and I thought it was interesting here because they actually shift the story to Katrine as the star of the film at this point, which I never would have expected coming into this film that the femme fatale, I guess you would might want to call her, or the, like you said before, the Bond girl kind of character um, would be the focus. Yeah. And she really does become, she becomes the motivating factor of this film. She continues the meetings while Sarek is uh, imprisoned because the police we find out are not the police they are the cartel who have now faked a a faked a police station right and are keeping sarah held captive while they finish out this plot with katrine making the deal for the diamond meanwhile katrine is creating this whole thing where she is going to double cross everybody right and she makes a deal uh, of plan with ludwig to uh, Cause she, I, I thought this was actually kind of clever as she's driving through the street, she hits a piece of act of uh, traffic because there's some construction going on and she finds out where the construction is going to go next. Yeah. So she can use that as a delay for the plan, yeah. which I was like, again, this film, when it wants to, when it finds motivation, it really is quite smart. I, I enjoyed that factor. Yeah. I totally agree with you there. That was, again, it's like, it's, it's interesting how like they'd have these little pieces where it's like, Oh, this really works. And I'm, you know, I do wonder if maybe that's, you know, maybe some of the changes happened in post or happened when the filming was made that they decided like, okay, what, maybe they had more elaborate plans for some of these other things mm -hmm. that we were talking about is that, you know, being either lazy or having padding or something, maybe they had more elaborate plans for them and they just had to, to, you know, do it in a more simpler way just to just to get on get on with the film um or because maybe they, they had limitations with, with val kilmer or something like that um but it, you, you're right i mean you know you know when, when when she does that part um you know again with with this movie it could have gone either way right when she talks to the construction workers it could have been that you know she finds out and maybe it's just a very simple thing where like there's a car chase and she leads them there and it was just not not that big of a deal but the fact that it was really integral to what she was doing there to double cross the cartel was it was another really smart piece of filmmaking yeah and um you know as she's putting her plans in or in order matt uh the guy from the cartel says i'm gonna take nick back to the train so that he, we can get him home you know and she says her goodbyes that's gonna be the end of she we see and honestly in this um in this series anytime anybody says goodbye to val kilmer it's usually the end of val kilmer in the film <laughs> we're, we're done because he only works in so much of a film and in, in this case he did the whole movie, thankfully. Uh, so he leaves with Matthew on the train. And then while on the train to try to get him off the train, Matt tries to kill him and, you know, tries to throw him off the train to, to end his, because he's going to clean up loose ends. He doesn't want any witnesses. Did you catch that Matt, Matthew, the guy that was throwing him off the train, did you catch what his last name was? No, I didn't. No. His last name is Murdoch. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Matt Murdoch, daredevil. Right. Like, okay, come on. Like, <laughs> any. That's so way too obvious. Like you can't name somebody Matt Murdock. Not in this day and age. That's awesome. Yeah, when I was thinking of Murdock, my first thought went to uh to MacGyver. I was thinking of the bad guy from MacGyver. Oh yeah, Matt mm -hmm. Murdock. And I, I didn't even put that those two together. That it was it was uh and the other thing too, because I was watching it with the the closed captions on to um uh you know just to make sure I wasn't missing it. You know when I was I was hearing it, they spelled it um D -O -C yeah they spelled it differently yeah and so i wonder if maybe that, that why i didn't catch it but that that's awesome <laughs> that he was he was supposed to be daredevil yeah well 
instead of throwing uh, Nick off the train, he ends up getting tossed off the train and ends up dying. And as he's dying, he tells Nick they're going to kill Katrine. So obviously right back into the plot because we can't, Nick's not going to let Katrine get killed. That can't happen. This is, you know, he's the hero and we can't have Katrine die. So at this point now we have the meeting between Katrine and the jeweler and the ministers. And this whole film comes down to diamond distribution. That's really what the plot of this film is. And it felt like this is very much like the taxation in Star Wars. Like, right. is this how, like, we have an action film that's based around this distribution system? Like, I, it's way too boring an idea to be the focus of this film. Yeah, and the other thing, too, like what you talked about with the cartel, like, why don't they just go in there and take everybody out? It, it, it feels like when you're, when you're supposed to be like a government agency, um, you, even if it's like the CIA or something like that, you've got to like kind of flesh things out and you've got to let people incriminate themselves and you've got to let them show that they, you know, they are who they say they are and, and, and get proof and arrest them and that kind of thing. And the whole idea is that there's supposed to be justice involved with them, they, whatever it is, the FBI, Interpol, whatever. But when it's a diamond cartel that's illegally running diamonds throughout the world or illegally controlling the diamond trade throughout the world, once you know what this guy is trying to pull, you can just go in there with your silencer gun and just pew pew and that's it he's done and, and that's, that's that's the movie um so the fact that there's all this intrigue based on uh, an illegal operation that doesn't really have to follow the rules that that government organizations try to follow at least to try to show that they're the good guys these are the bad guys they don't need to to be the good guys um it was interesting like why they're going through all this trouble when they already know everything and they already know who they need to take out and why not just take them out doesn't make any sense, yeah. you know, especially when in the end, he does that. Right, exactly. <laughs> so what was the plan all along? Right. If, you, if you could at the end just go bloom, 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 blow everybody away, yeah. why did you wait all that time? Right, yeah. You, you didn't need proof. Like, what was it? You, oh, you wanted to make sure that they actually did, went through with their plan to show that, that, to make it so you, like, you felt good about killing them? Like, killing people all movie. Just go ahead and kill them. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. But either way, so they, they set up the exchange at the uh, meeting, and so – Katrine gives them each an address and they they call their guys and everybody has the same cell phone, by the way, in this phone. Did you notice that? Yes. <laughs> the exact same model. I'm, I'm assuming they bought in bulk. Right. <laughs> yes. yeah. but they just have like two or three that they just passed. They just pass around. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, um, they each get an address. They call their guys and tell them to meet up to exchange the money for the diamonds. And meanwhile, Nick sneaks into the meeting as a waiter. Yeah. What is the security in this place that he can make it to this private room on the second floor of this building with nobody questioning who he is? And where did he get the wait waiter outfit? Right, right. I don't remember how he gets it because he's he's in the waiter outfit. Because remember, he attacks somebody in the bathroom. That person in the waiter outfit. See, right, in the waiter outfit. That person doesn't see him. So no. you know, conveniently, they don't know who he is. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and the other thing, too, is how Nick gets to this place again it's the movie saves him because he doesn't know how he's supposed to get back and then suddenly they don't know that he's not murdoch they think he's murdoch and so mm -hmm. they transport him so it's like the movie again saves him the movie sort of takes him where he needs to go and then yeah i i don't remember him getting a waiter's outfit nope. at all i don't remember how they just suddenly he's dressed in it and um, yeah. i will have to say like you were talking about val kilmer like how in a lot of these he's just there for a few minutes and that's it this was a very invested val kilmer in this film the fact that he's doing mm -hmm. all of these different costumes and you know doing <laughs> These action sequences and things like that. I mean, I don't know how much of it was stunt doubles, but, you know, it seemed like he was, th this was a very invested Val Kilmer, which you don't usually see in these movies with the big name star. They're usually there yeah. for a couple of days. They're going to do their scenes, give them their, their, their 60 grand or hundred grand or whatever it is. And, and that's it. And put their name on the cover so you can sell more copies. And so Although since he was dating Isabel, you know, Miko, then 
they get to have a European holiday together. Right, exactly. That's probably what it was. That's actually a great point because I've heard stories about that, about um, people that make the movies and, and that's the reason why they make them is that they get a paid holiday somewhere. And so that, that actually might've been what it was. Very likely. Yeah. Well, either way, when they, uh, once he sneaks in as a waiter, the addresses get changed. The addresses weren't the same address. Right. And the one guy gets stuck in that traffic that, that uh, Katrine's set up. And the other one meets Ludwig, her buddy, her uncle, actually, we find out in the end. Yeah. And they exchange money for fake diamonds. Yeah. And so now everything starts falling apart because they figure out eventually that the switch was made. And then Sterling comes in, Sterling shoots everybody. And then Sterling gets shot and Nick gets shot and Ludwig gets shot. I mean, this movie falls apart quickly as far as, you know, bad things happening to Katrine and her, her buddies, especially since Sarek has escaped by breaking his own hand, I believe, and sliding it through the handcuffs to get out, which is so nasty. Yeah. And <laughs> he gets out, he kills a guy and he takes Katrine hostage. You know, you mentioned before this film built up some nice tension earlier. This there's no tension here. It's just bang, 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 bang. Everything happens so fast with no no chance to really think something might happen. It just happens at this point. Yeah, it's one of those like you got to put on your safety goggles because the loose ends are flying together from everywhere. <laughs> it's like you got to be careful. And um, you know, one thing that I was appreciative of a little bit was that it felt like they, that Katrine's character was just going to devolve into the standard damsel in distress and mm -hmm. she is for like a slight period but not enough like she kind of still affects her own escape when when Sarek is taking her out of the you know she oh, yeah. she you know so so I, I did appreciate that part of the movie because a lot of times with these characters with the female characters that's really all it is is that no matter how much agency they give them throughout the film eventually they're just going to be captured by the baddie and the hero has to go and rescue them and at least they didn't do that here which I, I appreciate it but, but you're right it's just sort of like everything is happening I think they were trying to create this like kind of frenetic pace but it, it more felt like okay we're up against it we need to get the thing in under 100 minutes let's just throw everything together and and maybe even like they, maybe it was extended in 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 the original cut and then when the people were watching like this is like 110 minutes we can't send 110 minutes out there you know we got to get this thing down and they just started chopping it all together and so that's what we're left with i mean you never know how that part of it happens but sure. it, it definitely was just kind of like whew, everything's coming out now and i gotta i gotta get, get you know get get you know sort of get in this shelter and get to get this safe location especially and like you know we talked about before how we have this guy nick who's this 50 year old doctor who suddenly is jason Bourne, um because he can run away from cops he can escape things he can leap over things and now in this last scene after katrine you know punches and knees uh you know uh Sarek to get away from him he nails him dead shot with a with a shot from a pistol we have no evidence that he's ever fired a gun before in his life we have no reason to believe that he has any marksman skill or training or anything like that. And he fired, I mean, I don't know if you've ever fired a gun. I haven't fired a gun. I know for sure watching videos online, it is not something you can just easily do. <laughs> Right, especially like I've never fired a handgun before, but you know, growing up in Maine, like you know, people would hunt and they'd have like uh, like a shotgun and you know, it has the report. And the handgun, I think, is the same thing. It has like a you know major report, and so it's like usually like because it's always like a joke, I think, in in comedies, right, where somebody's firing a gun for the first time and it goes all over the place and stuff like that. And yeah, and he's just like no, and his yeah, he doesn't stabilize or anything. He just fires and boom and he hits him like in in a situation where yeah, he there wasn't a lot of room for error because if he misses. No 
then the guy takes him down. Um, and or the, kills Katrine. Right, or kills Katrine, exactly. So, yeah, the fact that he just was able to, to hit him one shot and, and, and make it work. Um, you know, I mean, out of all the times in the film where the film doesn't save him, that would have been the place to maybe have Thomas or somebody come in and yeah. shoot him and take him out. And so be like, you know, uh, you know, maybe he fires and it's wild and he, and he, he misses and then Thomas kills him. They're like, of all the times in the film where they, 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 they could have written you know, they were supposed to be writing, you know, the writing failed and it was just the movie saving him out of a situation. This would have been the one time we actually could have been used that. It would have actually made sense. Nope, not the one time. You're right. right. This film just uh, struggles so much. So he gets out of Europe. He's done with this. Katrina is safe, I guess. You know, we, we should get spirit away. But Thomas shows up eventually and, and spirits are away because right. he always shows up when he's needed. Right. And we're back in New York, yeah. which... Um, I don't believe there's a Noble Street station. I don't know what Noble Street is in New York City, the nice little fake New York there they have. Right. And, uh, you know, Nick comes out of the, the his family practice in New York, which, again, I don't think there are family practices in New York. Right. Sorry, it's, it's New York City. It's too big for that kind of thing. And he has a postcard from Argentina from Katrine who's, you know, wishes she was there and wishes he was there, one or the other. And they're talking on the phone because, oh, I got your postcard. And then as they're walking down the street, he's walking down the street with the phone call and he hears a siren that passes him through the phone. And then ahead of him is Katrine in her brown wig and they're together and they go to a freeze frame, which I was like, that's an interesting choice to make. That is so out of character for this entire film to end on a, a romantic freeze frame like that. Yes. And, and the thing that got me about the New York part of it is that, you know, I, I don't remember who the director was, but somebody had said that like New York is one of the few cities in the world that is a character when it's in the film. Mm-hmm. And so it was so obvious that that wasn't New York. Um, oh, yeah. And it, they, they just slapped this like Noble Street Station to make it look like that, you know, like the Metro, you know, like have it have, you know, like it look at that script the the buildings did not look like anything that anyone would ever see you know because everybody's used to seeing new york you see new york yeah. on, you know even if you've never been there before it's on it's in so many movies that everybody recognizes it they know what this is supposed to be and that made me wonder like why they chose new york like i think they wanted to make him seem really cosmopolitan but i guess yeah like you could have picked any city and and people would have been like okay maybe that's that city you know or they they wouldn't have known it to the degree that every you know it's like i think there's a few cities in the world like that but New York is definitely one where people recognize it right away when they see it um, in, in a movie. Um, you know, that's why it, you know, it, it works a little bit with Toronto. Toronto can sometimes double for New York, but mm-hmm. you know, some kind of, I don't know what that was, like a, 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 it looked like a, a, a studio somewhere or something where they just- Oh, it's so fake. It. Right, yes. And so uh, maybe wonder like why that, you know, that might've been a decision to say like, okay, you know what, maybe he's not in New York City now. Maybe he's you know, just anywhere in any city, you know, um, it they didn't even have to name the city. He's just in America. And, you know, that would have been enough for us. We would have been like, okay, that, that's America. It had to be New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, yeah. And, and, and so, yes, yeah, she, she finds him there and that, uh, that, that whole thing, right. Where she's supposed to be in Argentina. And then like, when he sees her, he's like so giddy, which now I get it now because they were in a relationship. So he was probably, you know, in love with her at that time. And so they're like kind of giddy when they see each other. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that whole part of it, that whole relationship romance thing. Um, uh, you know, I guess they wanted the happily ever after moment. And so that's what the freeze frame was. But. Well, everybody's happy except all the people who died. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
yeah. kind of a strange way to end that. <laughs> yes. I mean, I wonder too, you mentioned that them being a couple. I wonder if maybe that last scene was maybe, maybe a little bit more amorous than they wanted it to be. And maybe they, <laughs> that's why they did the freeze frame because that was the only way they could resolve it. I, you know, you never know. Never know. We're not going to find out. I don't think anybody, not a lot of people are talking about, right. about this film. No, exactly. <laughs> uh, is there anything we haven't talked about this film that you'd want to cover? I don't know. I, I think, you know, the number one thing is just this idea that, you know, back then there were a lot of films that were made in, in Bulgaria, Romania, places like that. And we, we still see it somewhat now, you know, Seagal will make a film here or there in, in that area or something, or, or, or um, Van Damme. Van Damme's more European anyway, so he, he likes to be there, but also Seagal, it, you know, has uh, ties with the Russian government. So they will sometimes still make movies in that area, but mm -hmm. we're seeing more in the United States. And so this kind of film today might even, I don't know if how, how it would be made or how it would come across, but they might even shoot it in a place like Detroit and say it's set in eastern europe you know it's a it's a crazy thing to think about that we've we, you know how the the, ec the economics in this country have changed to such a degree that it's actually more cost effective to make it here than than over there um mm -hmm. and so when i was watching this i was feeling like wow i was kind of nostalgic for a different time of, of direct-to-video movies where in the 2000s just so many of them were made there um you know just seeing like all of the the the, the, the cast and crew whose last names ended in v because they were from oh, yeah. Bulgaria. And so you know <laughs> like you just you don't you know always see that as much anymore um which was very interesting and and i think the fact you know now knowing that val kilmer was dating the the lead star um the the starlet in this uh, explains maybe why he was so invested because again you don't always see the, the big name as invested. Sometimes you do like, you know, like if Dolph Lundgren is directing the film or producing it, he'll mm -hmm. be more involved because he's got more at stake with it. But generally it's more like, I'm just there to get my paycheck. Let me do my scenes and let me get out of here. Um, and, and, and at the very least, there was a bit more of a invested uh, Val Kilmer in this, which I did appreciate. Very cool. Yeah. I have to say, it looked good. The film definitely looked good. It had production value, which you can't always say for these low budget films. Yeah. Yeah, especially with those credits that we saw at the beginning. This, it, was, it was a little bit better than the credits would have suggested. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, now that we've had our say, why don't we hear from the man himself? It's time for a reading from the Book of Val. So our reading today comes from Val Kilmer's memoir, I'm Your Huckleberry. Uh, there's no mention of the film in this book, uh, which is not surprising in the least. Uh, but this passage comes from around that time in his life. I had foolishly ended things with JC and then even foolishly ended things with Daryl. I had overbought land and was house poor and alone. I was fighting for custody of my kids. I could feel the recession looming as well as a downturn of my career, which until this point had been starry and surreal. I suppose you could say that for the first time in my life, I was unlucky and I was unready to face the music. I was hiding from destiny, hiding from myself. And ultimately, I came out of hiding and began to think outside myself. That's how love works. One, what blesses one blesses all. Thanks be to Val. Now you can see, you know, at this, this, why he would do films like this, where he was, you know, he, he was really struggling for money. And so, you know, whatever would come down the pike, if it paid the bills, he would do it, I think. And that's, that really put a real dark light on his film, because, on his film career, because he had been so good up until that point. And when you, and it's clear when you do things for money, they're never going to be as good as if you do that for the art. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, one thing to you know, just think about his lasting legacy. I mean, when I went to look him up on IMDb just to kind of go through some of his films, he's the first Val that comes up still when you autofill on IMDb. So there's, you know, mm -hmm. he still has that legacy that he's the number one. And 
you know, it does make sense with this film, maybe why he was so invested that if at that same time he was dealing with divorce and, and uncertainty as well, that he may have gravitated to a character like this who was dealing with divorce and uncertainty. And of course, this character is going through all this crazy stuff that he wasn't going through. But I can almost see like why, you know, this one, he may have not just been doing for the money, that he may have been like the paycheck's great, but he also liked the idea of getting into this character. Very possible. You know, again, one day I hope maybe we can talk with him and find out some answers, but I don't know how open he'll be to that. <laughs> well, let's hear what some other people have to say about this film. Come children, let's explore the kills and valleys. So kills and valleys, the best and worst reviews of this film. Usually for kills and valleys, uh, you know, I'll have at least a handful of critical reviews for this film. Not the case here. There's not a single review on Rotten Tomatoes for Double Identity. Uh, where the film sits a stark 18% with audiences, which is not good, uh, which is surprisingly bad because the film is not bad per se. It's confusing. It's definitely not the greatest film, but I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's 18% bad at least. Um, we'll look at how the film fared with the unwashed masses on Amazon. There were just 57 reviews there, which might be the fewest for any Val Kilmer film that we've done on this show. Uh, 51% of them, though, are five stars. Uh, here are some of the highlights. Uh, this movie stands the test of time. It will always be worth watching. We loved it, even though not everything makes perfect sense. Why throw a gun away when you're in trouble? Why go back to the same hotel when your picture's on the paper? You will see lots of wigs, action, love, and spies in Bulgaria. <laughs> That's a good cover of it. Yeah, I saw an IMDb one. that I think they gave it six and a six or seven out of ten i think it was a six out of ten and they were like this isn't that bad and they were like trying to explain to us they were, like it was one of those ones where they had to tell us why it was a good movie which i always feel mm -hmm. like if you have to explain to me why it's a good movie like like you're not smart enough to pick up why this was a good movie then it's not a good movie like a, no. that you know but they still give it six out of ten um but yeah i i always feel like with these movies people are used to a certain caliber of a Val Kilmer and they see him in this and he's, he's not quite in shape the way he was um, for those movies. So that's always the first thing, right? It's like, okay, mm -hmm. how does he, and they always go right for the looks and that part of it, but also they, they don't see a lot of other names in the movie. And, and so they start to really start picking it apart. And I think that's one of the things for these actors that go from mainstream to direct to video is that their audience doesn't really follow them because their audience is, is looking for, they want more of the doors. They want heat. They want that, you know, Wonderland, that kind of movie. And when he's, you know, when they know he's capable of it, but he's doing this, there's no, there's no bright side to it. They just want to just, you know, there's like, I can't believe I, I spent 90 minutes watching this. You know, they kind of want that temporal refund of, you know, when I, can I get that hour and a half back? Um, and you get a lot of that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> The cherry on top of this cake is Isabella Miko. Isabella at the height of her looks. I mean, she is hot in this film. <laughs> uh, people are always looking for a good, you know, good thing. Um, not a movie to be taken too seriously, but a delightful way to fill a time slot in which you are looking for something to watch. Definitely worth a look for some action, suspense, intriguing women, and of course, the star. Val Kilmer will always have his fans, and they will always tune in and defend him on, <laughs> on Amazon. And also... It arrived. Everything was okay. Well, that's, always good. <laughs> that's a five-star review. Yeah. Right, because so they weren't reviewing the movie. They were reviewing the purchase, which is yes. interesting, right? <laughs> which was okay. Yeah, it wasn't five stars is okay. <laughs> right, right. There weren't any scratches. It didn't skip. I'm good with that. 20% of the Amazon reviews were one star, which is actually probably the highest for any Val Kilmer film we've done so far. Bad and cheap flick. Bulgarian speaking Russian with bad at directing and acting. That's that's not great. 
quite a disappointment, especially after an epic movie like The Saint. So, like, The Saint is not exactly his highest film. <laughs> and <then> like, <laughs> like, but they're like, yes, this is below that. Okay. Okay. So this one, I'm going to... I'm going to read this review. It's titled Poor Craftsmanship Eliminates Suspense and Intent. You tell me where you spot, you spot the problem here, okay? The film opens as a vehicle driven by Paul Fleming, Nick Mancuso, becomes mired in snow, forcing him to trudge to a nearby small town, New Hope, where Good Samaritan Wayne, Jacques Godin, tows an automobile to a local repair shop. Spiny problem so far? <laughs> What are they reviewing? What is, what is this movie? Exactly. This is a very extensive, like, multi-paragraph review. And based on the names mentioned, it's actually a review of a French-Canadian TV movie series called Haute Tension. And the episode was titled Frontier du Crime. Um, but what's odd is it eventually was released on video as Double Identity. Oh, okay. <laughs> So this person looked up Double Identity, didn't bother to see, oh, is this the film I watched? Yeah. Just went to town on it and and just tore it apart for mul multiple paragraphs. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you have, to, you have to really make sure you read the reviews on Amazon <laughs> to make sure what you're looking at is right. Yeah. And nobody's going to go, I, I think that's the other thing too with these movies. Sometimes the movie has like a champion, like they'll have a producer or director or screener or somebody who like really champions the film. And I know because like I've sometimes I'll write reviews and those people will comment and tell me like what I got mm -hmm. wrong and all that. And I'll notice if somebody else reviewed it, same thing. Doesn't seem like double identity has that champion who would go through and be like reporting that for the Amazon people or something <laughs> like that. Cause, Cause it does happen. You do get people that like, you know, this is probably one that everybody involved once they were done with it, they went on and did, uh, did their other things. And it's oh, just there, you know, it's, it's on their IMDb page. So yeah. <laughs> well, we have a decision to make with or without Val. Does Val Kilmer make or break this film? I I think he he does. I I I think if you just put somebody else in this this role, I don't think it would have been as much fun. Um, mm. So I, for me, the part of the charm was seeing that, that Val Kilmer was in it. Yeah, I mean, this is Kilmer out of his element at this point in his career. It's not a character. I think he's a bit miscast in this role. I obviously will watch it because it's Val Kilmer, and I think a lot of people will watch it because it's Val Kilmer. Um, but he doesn't get to show off the gifts that he has as an actor, the ones that made him a star. He doesn't get to be suave for the most part. There's just some minor moments. His action skills are not where they were at one point. I mean, if only they'd let him cut loose a little bit, like, or given him a moment to cut loose, even if it was just some wisecracks to the bad guys. We saw in the last episode, we did Bloodworth, which was a, a very you know, tepid family drama, but it's very clear that the scenes he had, he got to ad lib and he just did his own thing. And they were fantastic. They were, they were so fantastic. They didn't match the rest of the film, which is why it's clear it was him that was ad libbing because he's known to change up his characters. I wish they'd let him do something like that because I think if it was that, or if they had him somebody in this role who was a little more believable as a man running for his life, which I don't believe he could do, this would be a better film. So it's one of the rare ones where I will say maybe this isn't the best film for Val Kilmer. Yeah, you know, you do bring up a great point because I think of like Nicolas Cage doing direct-to-video movies. And a lot of times with those direct-to-video movies, they really let him go to town and just be like Nicolas Cage on 10. And, and in a way, it enhances the film because he's, you know, he's, he's sort of allowed to just get out there and just do whatever, he, whether it feels like it fits the film or not, him doing it just makes it so crazy that it, it's enjoyable. 
I, that, that is a good point that I didn't consider that, you know, maybe if Val Kilmer had been allowed to be more Val Kilmer, because um, you think of his great roles, like I think Wonderland might be one of my favorites of his, and I just loved how he did that John Holmes character, and if he had moments where he could have just been goofier, you know, or just, yeah, just kind of did things that were a little bit more Val Kilmer, that, yeah, that's a good point, like he, he didn't get a lot of that room in this film. No. It's unfortunate, but you know, there's other films we can watch. (laughs) Well, now that we've covered double identity, I'd like to play a little game and it's called double identity. I I know it's not very original. I'm sorry. (laughs) In today's film, Val Kilmer plays a man with two identities. He's a doctor and a man of mystery. Uh, So in a nod to Val Kilmer's Swedish heritage, my Swedish cousin Anika is going to give you a word in Swedish and you're going to tell me if the identity of that word is a Val Kilmer film translated into Swedish or an Ikea product. Okay. All right. Okay? All right. <laughs> so I will have Anika say the first word and you tell me if it is a Val Kilmer film translated into Swedish or an Ikea product. Okay. And here's the first one. Top Hemlick. That sounds like a Val Kilmer film. It could be a Val Do you want to hear it again? Yeah. Let's... Top Hemlick. Yeah, I I feel like because I feel like the three titles that feel, makes me feel like it's it's got to be a, a Val Kilmer movie. <laughs> you are correct. It was Top Secret. Top Secret. Top Hemlick. Okay. All right. So, so actually, I was wrong because I was thinking it was a three-word title. So I, that part is like. So. <laughs> Here's number two. Score this. Okay, that definitely is a. It, I I feel like that's an I, IKEA like something you can get at the food area. <laughs> Scotus is a pegboard sold at Ikea. It was Ikea. So I was wrong about what it was, but it was Ikea. Okay. Here's number three. I, I want to hear it again. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go with Ikea for that one. That is the doors. Oh, the doors. Oh, yes, of course. Dorana. Okay. <laughs> Here's the next one. Verme. Oh boy. I'll play it again. Verme. I'm I'm gonna go with, with, with Val Kilmer movie. You are correct. It is Heat. Heat, okay. Verme. I felt like it was a short something short. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the next one. Tonviken. Okay, that I think is is an IKEA product. You are correct. It's a kitchen island. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Up next. So That I think is an IKEA product. And you would be correct. Those are LED outdoor string lights. Okay. All of these sound like the food items there. And so I'm waiting for one of them to be like the Swedish meatballs or something, but we have so larvid. Yeah. Next one. Mine, yeah, get it. I think that is a Val Kilmer movie. I'll play it one more time for you. Mine, yeah, get it. Yeah, I think it's a Val Kilmer movie. It is, in fact, a Val Kilmer movie. It is Mindhunters. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Up next. Valentina. Ooh. One again? Yeah, that's a close one. Valentina. I'm going to go with that being an Ikea product. Valentuna is an ottoman. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I love Ikea. <laughs> yes. 
Here's number nine. Verkligt geni. Okay, I think that's a Val Kilmer movie. You would be? Correct. That's real genius in Swedish. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the final one. Vardam. Oh, boy. That's a tough one. Want it again? Yeah, that's... <laughs> Vardam. Okay, I'm going to say that's an Ikea product. And you would be? Correct. Ugh. That is a ramekin for baking. <laughs> so, none of these were food items. I was expecting at least one of them. Those are the ones I'm used to seeing. Like, I'll, you know, I'll go check them out. I usually, yeah. I'm not much of a shopper at Ikea, but I'll go with people who go, and I'm used to going to get the food section and get that there. So. <laughs> the food section, I, I, when I looked at the words, uh, for some reason, they don't translate directly into English. Oh. So um, <laughs> it was a little tougher to, to make them work for, uh, for the pronunciation. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> um, <laughs> not not everything there is actual real words. Uh, some of it's just made up stuff. Right. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> well, uh, that's it for this episode of Kilmercast. I'd like to thank you, Matt, for joining me to talk about this film. Um, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Yeah. I mean, so so the website is dtvconnoisseur.blogspot.com. Um, that's really where you can find everything. So that's where you get links to my social media, um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Also, um, the podcast links are on there as well. Um, it's better if you view it as a web page. So if you're viewing it from mobile, I think you have to click the view as web page to see all the links, but that's there. Um, and then my novel, Chad and Accounting, it's on uh, uh, Amazon. You can get in paperback or, or Kindle Unlimited. I think it's easier to look up Chad and Accounting than it is look, look up my name, Matthew Porter, <laughs> and try to remember how to spell that. So, but that, you can get that on Amazon, again, uh, paperback uh, or Kindle, Kindle Unlimited. That's great. Definitely check that out. Uh, in our next episode, we'll be taking the Batmobile back to 1995 to talk about Batman Forever and arguably the best Bruce Wayne on film, in my opinion. Uh, in the meanwhile, please email any thoughts, questions, or comments to KilmerCast at gmail.com and follow the show on Twitter at KilmerCast. For myself and my guest, Matthew Porer, I said it wrong again, I think. Close it up. Thanks for listening and remember to keep it Kilmer. Hey!